Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. You heard that little ditty? It's been around a long, long time. It's a macabre schoolyard rhyme and continual media coverage, including numerous books and films, have kept the memory of a Massachusetts double homicide alive in the public's imagination for well over a century now. During an oppressive heat wave in August 1892, prominent Fall River residents Andrew and Abby Borden were brutally murdered in their home, each dealt multiple and savage blows to their heads with a hatchet. The only serious suspect was Andrew's 32-year-old unmarried daughter, Lizzie, who was at the house during the killings. His other daughter, Emma, who also lived at home, was out of town, and their live-in maid, Bridget Sullivan, was in her third-floor room resting from a morning of window washing and vomiting following the consumption of possibly spoiled mutton stew that may have been behind the whole family having been sick for days prior to the killings. A prim, proper church-going woman in a nice, well-to-do Fall River, Massachusetts neighborhood, brutally killing two members of her own family with a hatchet? It was unthinkable. And the case received widespread and constant newspaper coverage when Lizzie was charged with the murders and went to trial. And then Lizzie was found not guilty by the jury. But the majority of residents in Fall River, Massachusetts seemed to disagree with the verdict and she was shunned by most of the town for the rest of her days. When you look at the evidence, it does seem like she almost had to have done it. But did she? And whether she did or didn't do it, why did she spend the rest of her life living in Fall River, where everyone assumed she was guilty? This only added to the public's fascination with her. And since the crime remains officially unsolved, interest has never gone away. There are all kinds of theories as to why she may have committed the murder. She, she wanted her father's inheritance. She was sick of living under a domineering father's thumb. She was a victim of incest at the hands of her father. Her father thwarted a love affair she'd had. She was angry with her father for killing her pet pigeons. She hated her father for marrying a stepmother she openly despised. Maybe all of the above contributed to the deaths. So many theories, almost all clearly revolving around her father. I'll have to make a, make a note to be extra nice to my own daughter, Monroe. Don't want don't to wake up to an axe... Axe wake-up call. That's the, uh, that's the worst kind of wake-up call. So did she do it? The jury said no, but most historians say yes. Well, we're going to look into Lizzie's life before the murders, the crime, the trial, and her strange life after the murders, all today on this true crime and dark, mysterious edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Monday time, suckers. Hail Nimrod. Praise Bojangles. Be gone, Lucifina. Go on. Get out of here. Go on. Get. I'm Dan Cummins, a.k.a. longtime stand-up comic, a.k.a. the master sucker, prophet of Nimrod, Lucifina's meat sack minion, and the fourth leg of Bojangles. And you are listening to Time Suck. Welcome to the cult of the curious. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by the Jim Jeffries Show podcast. The Jim Jeffries Show on Comedy Central covers the most controversial issues being discussed today. This dude is fearless. Very, very funny. Uh, Jim's distinctive brand of comedy and global point of view make the show extremely entertaining. Dude does not pull punches. I wish I had his accent. I feel like I could get away with uh, saying even more crazy shit if I had an Australian accent. Uh, the Jim Jeffries Show podcast, uh, slightly more podcasty version of the show. Uncensored. Uncensored Jim. Pure, unadulterated Jeffries. So listen each week as Jim Jeffries and co-host Forrest Shaw sit down with friends and guests to discuss news, politics, and all the things Jim couldn't, wouldn't, and shouldn't say on television. Subscribe now to the Jim Jeffrey Show podcast. Listen to new episodes every Wednesday on your favorite podcast app. Get it? Suck it. Ah, uh, yeah. 
And speaking of an international point of view, uh, I know we've gotten a lot of new listeners lately, especially from Canada, Australia, the UK, Sweden, elsewhere, Ireland. Uh, I'm glad I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad you're enjoying Time Suck. Thank you for joining us. So glad you're here. Always room in the in the cult of the curious for new members. And I really want to tour internationally someday. So, so keep spreading the suck in your uh, in your homelands. Get to it. Nimrod demands it. You know, I'm going to start stomping uh, Cocker Spaniel skulls to appease our strange God if he doesn't get what he wants. And no one wants that. Especially not the Cocker Spaniels. They really don't want that. Uh, and by the way, speaking of Nimrod, don't worry too much about the characters that pop up uh, in, our, in our little world here if you're a new listener. If you're curious about who they are, uh, just go to timesuckpodcast.com. Download the Time Suck app. It's on the uh, Google uh, Play, uh, you know, for Android and also the uh, the Apple App Store. And you can click on character bios and you'll find explanations of Chikatilo, Lucifina, Bojangles, Nimrod, Michael motherfucking McDonald, a.k.a. Triple M. And there are, of course, others, Pootie and Juju, like our own Itchy and Scratchy, little comic book within the Time Suck world, first appearing in the Stalin Suck, Chicken Joe, strange 1970s eccentric and flamboyant Houston pimp who showed up in the Candyman episode, Bok Bok Playboy, Bok Bok. All part of the effort to make this podcast a little more than uh, just a straight telling of these stories. If you would prefer a straight telling, like a drier telling of these uh, tales, all story and no jokes, well, then go find a different podcast, you fun-killing party pooper. The silliness is here to stay. And a certain amount of profanity. Fucking profanity. Unnecessary but enjoyable to me. Uh, If I can't do it my way, I'd rather not do it at all. Uh, Time suck is my attempt to make learning fun. I'm a big believer that knowledge is power and doesn't have to be a chore to attain knowledge. And now Time Suck has become a community of others who feel the same, uh, people who support each other in the Cult of the Curious Facebook group. People who have launched their own Facebook groups, uh, people who have uh, started their own podcasts, businesses, charities, after letting the suck fire them up, started their own little like uh, Dungeons and Dragons group and uh, get together for this. And that's great, man. Uh, a bunch of people who like hearing tales of exceptional and, and the unusual, the extraordinary, uh, the famous and the infamous, people who feel less alone now that they found their tribe, pe- people who have uh, let my weird passion reignite their own passions, their own creative fire. So hail fucking Nimrod. Woo! Uh, been a bit since I reestablished what the hell this is. Felt felt needed. Feels good. Uh, Time Suck is about fun, education, about staying curious your whole life. Enjoy learning. Enriching your mind feels good, and it should. Learn, evolve, change others, wash, rinse, repeat. And Time Suck is not about attempting to push any agenda other than the agenda of just being a logical person. Using critical thinking in a world that feels uh, increasingly illogical and polarizing. Am I going to get it wrong sometimes? Yeah. I'm just another fallible meat sack, just like you. That's okay, because Time Suck is also about forgiveness. It's about learning, sending your critiques, catch my mistakes, email them to bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com so they can be included uh, in in another Time Sucker update that we do at the end of the show. Republicans, Democrats, Independents, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, American Indian, straight, gay, trans, bi, pro-choice, pro-life, religious, atheists, you're all welcome here. Uh, You're all going to hear something that's going to piss you off, too, from time to time, because I'm an unruly miscreant. And because Time Suck is also about being honest, not being afraid to say what you think in a world that increasingly seems intent on trying to shut so many of us up and crucify us for ever having a fucking opinion that is deemed politically incorrect. How dare you have thoughts that aren't like the, the other people's thoughts? Uh, everything's got to be monitored by the thought, thought police now. Witch hunters, they're out there like, trying, to, trying to bring people down. Have opinions. Just have thought out opinions. You may not like mine, but, you know, I don't toss them out willy nilly. I think about this shit. And be willing to change your opinion when confronted with solid evidence to the contrary. Happens to me all the time. Time sucks about all that and more. And it's probably mostly just a nice place to get away from troubles past a few hours of time each week. I get that. 
So thanks for listening. Thank you for allowing me to continue to do what I love. Thanks for uh, letting us have a job here uh, to tell, you know, interesting stories. And today's story is coming up quick. I promise you beautiful bastards. Recording the Suck Dungeon. This fine fall day. It's crisp outside, but I like it. Reverend Dr. Joe motherfucking Paisley and Queen of the Suck Lindsay in the Suck Dungeons today. Uh, had fun. Thank you for the people who came out to the Huntington Beach stand-up shows. Orange County. It's always been a tricky market for me. Smaller crowds, but mighty crowds. Man, first show Friday was electric. All the shows were fun. And uh, and I pissed off the bartender, who apparently is a flat earther and did not care for my take on flat earth. So, you know what? Well, maybe maybe I shamed him into some fucking learning. Thanks to all the Portland, Oregon time suckers last weekend too, man. Holy shit, those shows were some of the best I've ever had. My God, Portland's always been so good to me. Always going to have a special place in my heart. Uh, most fans I've ever had turn out in Portland by far. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Five stand-up shows this weekend in Tacoma. Let's make these the best Tacoma shows that have ever, ever, ever happened. At the Tacoma Comedy Club, October 11th through 13th. Another Lifetime Slick podcast on the 14th about those narco-Satanists led by Adolfo Constanzo in the late 80s just across from the uh, uh, Mexican border town of Brownsville, Texas, in Matamoros. Uh, three shows in Columbus, Ohio on Friday and Saturday, November 2nd and 3rd. Friday early show, two shows on Saturday. Let's, let's do it, Ohio. It's fucking O-H-I-O. Uh, tear that club up. Helium Comedy Club in Buffalo, New York, November 8th through the 11th. Back to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Dr. Grins, November 16th, 17th, including my last live podcast of 2018 on the 17th. Uh, tickets finally on sale for Dr. Grins. Small room, so uh, be sure and get them early so you don't get left literally in the cold. It's going to be freezing there in, in November. More dates at DanCummins.tv. Links to tickets always in the episode descriptions. Thanks, as always, for the reviews, especially the positive ones. They help spread the suck and help us to continue to get new sponsors and do what we do here. And now let's get into the meat of today's Lizzie Borden sandwich. Uh, we're heading down what is probably a pretty uh, previously trodden trail for some of you. The tale of Lizzie Borden, while I was not familiar with it prior to this past week, has been covered and retold repeatedly over the years. There was the uh, Agnes DeMille's 1954 ballet Fall River Legend and the 1965 opera Lizzie Borden. Uh, the concept recently reimagines a rock opera called Lizzie the Musical. There was a 1975 made-for-TV movie, uh, The Legend of Lizzie Borden, starring bewitched Elizabeth Montgomery, uh, who in real life was six cousins with Lizzie. Uh, there's, of course, the Lizzie Borden tribute band, Thin Lizzie. Uh, on March 26, 1976, the Irish uh, melodic metal band released their most known song, The Boys Are Back in Town. Now, that song is about a couple of Portuguese workers who had previously worked for Lizzie Borden's father, Andrew, who were later minor suspects in the murders when they showed back up in town on the day of the killings. The boys are back in town. The boys are back in town. Dun, 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 dun. The boys are back in town. The boys are back. The boys are back. Friday night they'll be dressed to kill. Down at Dino's Bar and Grill. The drink will flow and the blood will spill. And if the boys want to fight, you better let them. All right, Dino's was a bar and grill that Lizzie and her family frequented. And of course, that is horseshit. Uh, Thin Lizzie has nothing to do with Lizzie Borden. Uh, would, be great, <laughs> would be great if it did. Uh, Lizzie Borden's story has been... Uh, Told a lot in pop culture, though. You know, almost 40 years later, uh, uh, Lifetime aired the Christina Ritchie vehicle. Lizzie Borden took an axe after that, 40 years after that first movie. Followed it with the series called The Lizzie Borden Chronicles. Both were panned by critics. Both also got a fair amount of eyeballs on them, bringing the case of Lizzie Borden back to the public eye. Uh, just a few weeks ago, a new Lizzie Borden film, a psychological thriller starring uh, Chloe Savini as Lizzie and Kristen Stewart as Bridget Sullivan, the family maid, 
titled simply Lizzie hit select theaters. I need to see it, man. I love Chloe Seventy. My God, one of my favorite actresses for sure. Uh, very just, I don't know. She just seems like a really good actress to me. She's like captivating to me. One of the most captivating. And, and, and you know, I do think she's very sexy. Uh, also, uh, I have seen the Christina Ritchie movie and I liked it better than most critics. Lifetime, man. Fucking stepping up their movie game in the past several years. Black Keys on the soundtrack. Stylized thriller. I, I feel like for the most part, they stuck to the story really well. Lifetime's come a long way since pumping out nothing but cheesy man-hating melodramas in the 80s and 90s where like, you know, every movie seemed about, yeah, like a, like an abusive dad or a, like a drunk husband, you know, and some fucking brow, you know, just just put upon wife. It seemed like that was Lifetime's formula for so long. Anyway, of course, these murders have stuck with us. Uh, the case of Lizzie Borden is just for lack of a better word, uh, odd. Her reactions to questions seem strange at her trial. She seems strange. Her decision to stay in town where she was ostracized following her trial and thought by the overwhelming majority of residents to have killed her parents, very hard to understand for me. Uh, she never married, never seriously courted anyone following the death of her father and stepmother. Her sister, Emma, was 41 at the time of the murders, also perfectly attractive, also chose to be what was called at the time a spinster. Now, not everyone has to get married, and perhaps both of them were lesbians and didn't like dudes. Maybe they just uh, were happy being alone. Uh, at the very least, though, it was just an atypical family. Not normal behavior for the times. Uh, Lizzie hosted lavish parties that lasted long into the night, you know, into the wee hours of the morning uh, with local actors and actresses, uh, which a member of upper society, especially a single woman, just did not do at the time. She did that after her parents' deaths. Numerous mistakes were made by the cops who investigated the murders. Uh, the court made a number of bewildering decisions regarding what evidence should be allowed uh, in the trial, amongst other blunders. Lizzie burned a dress shortly after the murders, uh, she tried to buy prussic acid, a.k.a. cyanide, the day before the murders. Uh, so, so you know, so many just what-the-fuck decisions were made either by Lizzie Borden or by those investigating Lizzie Borden. So now let's, let, let's build up to these decisions and also take a closer look at them in today's Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. Lizzie Andrew Borden was born in Fall River, Massachusetts on July 19th, 1860 to parents Sarah Anthony, formerly Sarah Morse, and Andrew Jackson Borden. I shit you not. Seriously, I am not making his name up. Andrew Jackson is already back. He's haunting me. He's haunting me. Uh, the most polarizing topic I've I've done here on the suck, which, which I had no idea would be so pol polarizing, had no idea he would ever show up again. Uh, that really is Lizzie's dad's name. Lizzie Borden murdered Andrew Jackson. Uh, I know based on emails and reviews, some of you not big fans of Andrew Jackson or my take on him. And I get your reasoning. Uh, well, actually, we'll go over it a little bit in the Time Sucker updates today. So th this this may be a, a bit of a redemption moment for you. You know, in this episode, Andrew Jackson gets his fucking head caved in with an axe. Does that feel good? Uh, and you know, <laughs> I will talk about it a little more in the updates, but uh, ju just know that if former President Jackson were alive today and acted the way he acted in the early 19th century, I would think he was a monster. I would hate his guts, right? He would be a, he would be a monster. And, and while I respect his bravery in battle and a lot of what he did for our nation, and I respect his toughness and perseverance, yeah, of course, I also think he did a lot of fucked up things. You know, clearly he was not a, he was not a great example of, uh, of, of someone having, you know, ideal race relations. Uh, I'm a little bummed. Uh, some of you couldn't see kind of really like the gist of my take and somehow felt betrayed by my take on him. But uh, maybe I should make it clear enough that I didn't, 
I'm not condoning his decisions. I'm just saying, you know, it was a different time. I love our uh, African-American and American Indian suckers. Please, please know that uh, admiring some of the deeds and parts of the character of someone from an era long, long ago that didn't share my ideals in certain areas uh, doesn't change that about me. I'd like to think I don't even need to say something like that, but you know, people have emotions. And sometimes those emotions can lead to triggers that I'm not always even aware of, uh, hurt feelings, interpretations that don't seem uh, really like fair to me, but you know, we all have our our lens we see life through. Just wanted to get that out there. Felt fell needed. I'm the same dude I was before the suck. Uh, now back to a different Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson Borden, born in 1822, was a descendant of wealthy and influential Fall River residents. Uh, grew up struggling to get by, though. Uh, he came for money, fell on hard times, and eventually made his own money. Eventually made a modest fortune in the manufacturing industry where he sold furniture and caskets. Uh, he also worked as a property developer, director of a textile mill, landlord of uh, several commercial properties, and was president of the Union Savings Bank and director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. By his life's end, he'd amassed an estate worth $300,000, which would be a little over $8 million uh, in today's money. So very solid, man. I will never cease to uh, be impressed by the tale of a self-made man or a self-made woman. You know, that's part of uh, the appeal of Oprah Winfrey. Working your way up from nothing, nada, and leaving the future generations of your family far more than you ever had early in your life. Man, personification of the American dream. And that's what Andrew Jackson Borden was in many ways before he met his untimely and gruesome fate. Despite being the 1860s version of a millionaire, Andrew never spent very much money on his family. He was known as a bit of a miser, bit of a Scrooge, McAndrew, McJackson, McBorden. I get it, man. He was poor when he was younger. You know, uh, he went through some tough times. He knew what it was like to uh, truly worry about money. I can, I can be a little bit of a miser. I got a little bit of that rep in my own family. But you, know, you got to fucking save your money. Not enough people do. Uh, the Borden home had no indoor plumbing or electricity, even though most wealthy homes did at the time. Uh, while their home was in an affluent area, 90, uh, 92 2nd Street, Street, Excuse me, the wealthiest residents of, the fall, of fall Hill, including many of the Borden's relatives, lived in a more uh, fashionable neighborhood called The Hill a neighborhood uh, further away from the industrial areas of Fall River, far more desirable. Lizzie openly complained to her father for years about how they should live on the hill, how it was embarrassing to not live on the hill. You know, it was her dream to be a debutante, living living on the hill, a lady of means. Someone doesn't have to shit outside, a less openly trashy Paris Hilton. Fall River, located 60 miles due south of Boston, only 18 miles southeast of Providence, Rhode Island. Fall River lies on the eastern border of Mount Hope Bay, which begins at the mouth of the Taunton River, starting south from the Charles M. Braga Jr. Bridge. The greater portion of the city is built on hillsides, rising quite abruptly from the water's edge to a height of more than 200 feet or 60 meters. From the summits of these hills, the country extends uh, back in comparatively uh, level tableland, on which a large section of the city now stands. The area of Fall River, originally settled by European colonists in 1670, later incorporated in 1803, uh, originally named for numerous waterfalls that ran through the town. A steep western portion of the river between downtown and the waterfront originally consisted of a series of eight small waterfalls confined within a narrow rocky bed. Then beginning in the early 19th century, a series of small dams erased most of these waterfalls. Uh, there are currently plans being considered that would restore or recreate them, build a green belt through the town with connection to the waterfront. If you're a, you know, Fall River listener, uh, the current population, about 90,000 people. And in the 1890s, already uh, around 75,000 people lived there. So it's a big city for the day. In the 1870s, Andrew Borden made the beginning of his fortune riding a huge economic boom in Fall River. The city's population increased by 20,000 people during just two years. 
uh, in the early 1870s, like 1870 uh, into 1872. Textile production was big. It was already the leading textile production center in Massachusetts in 1868 with over 500,000 active spindles cranking out fabric. Uh, by 1872, this number had doubled to more than a million. Spindles and spinsters. That's the main topics of today's show. Spindles and spinsters. Uh, by 1876, the city had one-sixth of all New England cotton capacity and one-half of all print cloth production going on. The Spindle City, as it became known, was second in the world only to Manchester, England, in terms of total output in this regard. Make, making that sweet spindle money. Andrew and Sarah married on Christmas Day, 1845. Which is that? That's weird to me. Why would you get married on Christmas? But whatever. Uh, when he was 23 and she was 22, but they wouldn't have a child until five years after their wedding day. Uh, until then, they were just fucking for fun. Uh, Emma Borden, born March 1st, 1851. And, and then in 1856, a second daughter was born named Alice Esther. Uh, but Alice died at the age of two of uh, hydrocephalus, water on the brain. Uh, Lizzie was their third and last child. And when Lizzie was three years old in 1863, her mother, Sarah Borden, died. Now, she she was killed as fate would have it with a, with a tiny child's axe. Uh, little Lizzie's toy axe, to be precise, her death was ruled an accident, even though young Lizzie, uh, it, it seemed that she may have bludgeoned her mother somewhere between 70 and 90 times with this tiny little axe. It took that many whacks uh, to break through Sarah's skull due to Lizzie's weak little baby swings and, and the wispy little baby hatchet. Investigators just couldn't figure out why she would just kind of, you know, lay there and take that. Uh, obviously, that's not true. Obviously, uh, little Lizzie did not hack her mother down with a tiny axe. Her mother died of uterine congestion. And, and a disease of the spine. Uh, Emma was 12. It took care of Lizzie. That's what the ruling was. She probably died of something else, but people, people didn't know what things were as much back then. Uh, Emma was 12 and took care of Lizzie despite the family living near the girl's grandfather, step-grandmother, and uh, Aunt Lorana. From then on, older sister Emma would continue to be like a mother to Lizzie. The two girls were brought up in the Central Congregational Church where Lizzie taught Sunday school to children of immigrants as a young woman. She was a member of the Organization of the Christian Endeavor Society, where she served as secretary-treasurer. Uh, she was also a member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Stop drinking, fellas. Get that evil the devil whiskey out of your hands. Uh, as well as the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission. So, she just basically doesn't sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> she sounds like a real stick of the mud. She, she liked uh, fruit, didn't like drinking, and uh, yeah, okay. And she briefly joined a, a local axe enthusiast guild. Uh, she was put in charge of swing technique. Uh, when she was young. That's, of course, that's not true either. In, 16, in 1865, excuse me, just two years after her mother died, when Lizzie was only five, Andrew Borden had remarried Abby Durf, Durfee Gray Borden. Uh, she was 37 years old at the time, considered too, uh, to be an old maid when they were married, a spinster. So many spinsters in this tale. Uh, Abby had actually put her vagina in a safety deposit box at the bank a few years earlier because she just didn't think she was going to need it. Uh, Stop it, Lucifina. Yeah, why do you make me say stuff like that? No, Abby kept the Durfee name to uh, link her with one of the first families of the area. She desired respect and social status, was a daughter of a pushcart peddler, came from very little money. To marry someone of Andrew's station was an unexpected blessing, especially at her age. Many of the times speculated Andrew had proposed to Abby because he was looking for a housekeeper and someone to raise his daughters. He wasn't exactly known as a romantic. More, more likely that the 43-year-old businessman uh, needed help raising his daughters. The true relationship between Abby and her stepdaughter Lizzie remains something of a mystery. There, there's no evidence of abuse or neglect, but several persons, including prosecution witnesses in her murder trial, reported that the relationship was less than loving and that things were tense between them. 
Uh, some believe Lizzie killed Abby because she hated her, then felt that she had no choice but to also kill her father, who would know the truth. Lizzie's older sister, Emma, openly disliked Abby, and both girls called her Mrs. Borden most of the time rather than mother, and also rarely ate meals with their parents. There was, there was definitely tension in the Borden household. Uh, now, since there isn't a lot of, uh, you know, uh, evidence about the day-to-day going-ons uh, of, you know, Lizzie's children or a lot of documentation, that's the word I want to use. Let's skip ahead to 1892, the year of the murders. Lizzie is now 32 years old. Her sister Emma is 41 years old. Neither one of them seriously dating. Neither one has a job. So weird. Not, not, a, not terribly uncommon at the time. Uh, but not looked as, as desirable either. You were looked down upon if you weren't married by your mid-20s at, at the very latest. You were an old maid now. And now we have two very old maids, uh, both living on daddy's money. If anyone was going to kill anyone else in this family, I would have thought Andrew Jackson Borden would have the most motive to hack some family members down with an axe. You know, just, I am so fucking sick of paying for your lives. I pay and I pay and I pay. And what do I get? Two daughters who resent me. Couldn't at least one of you accept any of the men I tried to pawn you off on. Uh, you know, just something like like that as he's fucking swinging the axe. I'm so sick of the pain and the pain. Uh, in 1892, Andrew's 70 years old, still working full time to support his wife and two grown ass daughters who both wish uh, they lived up on the hill, especially Lizzie. You know, that had to have been fun. But daddy, daddy, we, we never get anything we want. I want to live on the hill with the real rich people, daddy. I want to use a golden fork to eat dinner with. I, not a silver fork. It's not fair, daddy. Why do you only buy Emma and I last year's fashions? I want to wear what people are wearing in Paris now. You're so cruel, daddy. Have you ever spent any time around someone in their 30s or 40s uh, who never, ever had to fend for themselves? Generally not a good look. And I'm always amazed by the level of entitlement some of those people have and the, and the anger they have towards the people who have just paid their way through life always. Uh, I got to say, doing the research this week, Lizzie Borden reeks of that person to me. Chronically unhappy with daddy and stepmommy, but never making an effort to, you know, I don't know, strike out on her own. And yes, I can already hear some of you, you know, starting to write that email. Listen, it was fucking different for ladies. It was hard. Yes, I know. I know. I know the history. I know it was. There were not many jobs for women. Uh, the, the workforce was incredibly unfair towards women at that time. But there were some women working. I mean, Bridget, you know, the housemaid, she, she worked for the family. She wasn't a member of the family. And there were female entrepreneurs that carved uh, lives for themselves as shopkeepers and saloon keepers and many more type of jobs, you know, out west, as we've learned in previous sucks at this time and earlier than this time. Like, it wasn't impossible. I mean, yes, would have been substantially easier with dad's assistance and funding, but not impossible. Uh, but Lizzie Borden just didn't seem remotely interested in that. She's, the more I read about it, I mean, she just seemed like a brat. Uh, uh, perhaps she was a lesbian. Uh, maybe that's why she didn't get, you know, didn't want to get married. That is a theory we'll discuss later. Uh, but yeah, in many ways, it just seems like in 1892, her and sister Emma just kind of perpetually moody teenagers trapped in 32 and 41-year-old bodies. Man, 41 too doing that. I'm, I'm 41. I can't imagine living with my mom like right now. Mother, please! Would you just make me a shepherd's pie with no cheddar on the tots like I asked for? You know what cheddar does to my tummy, mom. And not too much salt. I, I'll, I can salt my own dinner. I'm not a baby. And for the thousandth time, please understand, I have to finish my game of Fortnite before I come upstairs for dinner. It's not about me, mom. There are other people on my team depending on me. Uh, anyway. Oh my God, please. 
Oh, that sounds like this a horrible reality. But but back to 1892. In May of 1892, not indulgent enough father, Andrew Jackson Borden, uh, does something pretty weird. He kills uh, these pigeons in his barn. These like these pigeons that were like uh, Lizzie's pets with a hatchet. He believed they were causing local children to come onto his property in order to hunt the pigeons. And Lizzie <laughs> did not care for this. She was known to be very, very fond of animals. Uh, she would later donate uh, almost all of Andrew's money that had uh, passed to her when when he died to uh, an, a local animal shelter when she uh, herself passed away. And, and she'd recently built a roost for the pigeons and was extremely upset that dad killed him. So upset that a family argument erupted in July of 1892 that led both sisters to taking extended vacations in nearby New Bedford. Just, father, you murdered my pigeons, father. You murdered them. <laughs> Did you pay to keep them alive? Did you pay for the materials to build their roost? Did you pay to feed them? No, I did. They were my pigeons, weren't they? You want your own pigeons? You get a job. You pay for them. Sure, I, I could have given them away or obviously I, I let them go. But I I chose to needlessly whack them to death with a hatchet because, I, look, and listen, my pigeons are my rules. You're vile, father. Um, also, interesting note that Andrew uh, did kill them with a hatchet, considering three months later, he would be killed with a hatchet by the same woman, possibly, possibly, who cared about these pigeons. Right? Is that why he died? I mean, could it have been over pigeons? Uh, it is possible. I learned about the whole pigeon situation thanks to today's sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. That's right. Time Suck is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus has a course called Forensic History. Crimes, frauds, and scandals. And the uh, fiery first lecture, only 29 minutes long, is called Lizzie Borden and the Menendez Brothers. And the lecture begins with a discussion of Lizzie Borden, presented by Professor Elizabeth a. Murray, Ph.D. She's fantastic. Uh, she's a forensic anthropologist and professor of biology at Mount St. Joseph University, participated in hundreds of forensic investigations, been an expert on countless television shows, won tons of awards. Uh, she's but one of so many great teachers on The Great Courses Plus. And she told me about Lizzie Borden. Uh, and she told me about, uh, you know, how in 1891, the year before the axe murders, there had been a break-in at the Borden residence where only Emma and Lizzie and the living maid Bridget were home, happened in broad daylight just like the murders would later. The only things taken were about $50 and some of Abby's jewelry. The police were called, but then a few weeks later, Mr. Borden asked the police to stop their investigation. Why? Well, historians strongly believe that Andrew realized that Lizzie herself was the thief. She was a known thief. She was known to be a shoplifter in town uh, to the point shopkeepers were actually just told to quietly bill her father when they saw her take stuff. So she was a bit of a nut, uh, overly indulged nut. Uh, I highly recommend watching or listening to this lecture from the uh, uh, the Great Courses Plus to get that much more out of today's suck. And when you check out more lectures from the Forensic History course, you'll have a much better appreciation for all of our true crime episodes like next week's Chessboard Killer Suck. So with the Great Courses Plus, you'll get unlimited access to stream this and any of their other thousands of lectures. Learn about anything that interests you, people, places, events throughout history, scientific breakthroughs, even how to draw or take better photos. Watch or listen anytime, anywhere, with the Great Courses Plus app. You're going to love the Great Courses Plus, and now you can get a special, you know, free month of unlimited access. To start your free month trials, sign up through thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Sign up today and be sure to check out Forensic History only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. I also learned in this course uh, about a dark, lesser-known second verse to the Lizzie Borden nursery rhyme. You know, we kick this suck off with uh, in this course. That uh, Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. And then there's this I didn't know about. So close your door and lock and latch it because here comes Lizzie with her hatchet. Ah, dark one. 
look at that little extra knowledge nugget coming straight from the Great Courses Plus. Link in today's episode description, also on the sponsor page in the app and on the TimeSuck website. And now back to the Bordens. Uh, there were other tensions within the Borden family in 1892, mostly relating to money. Andrew was gifting you know, real estate to various members of his wife, Abby's very well-connected family. Uh, including Abby's sister, and this sent Emma and Lizzie into a uh, real uh, spoiled rich kid little tizzy. Uh, Emma and Lizzie demanded to have some rental properties given to them as well. It's not fair, Daddy. And uh, and their father gave check this out. This is great. Their father gave them the home they'd lived in before their mother died. Technically, they purchased purchased it from their father for a dollar, uh, a dollar he undoubtedly had given them since neither one of them worked. Uh, and then a few weeks before the murders. They sold this back to their father for $5,000, uh, equivalent to about $136,000 today. So basically, they each made $68,000 for being whiny. And, uh, and really, uh, having you know, sixty-eight grand was, was extra nice for them because they didn't have any bills. You know, room and boards paid for, the whole lives are paid for. Dad's 70, not going to live forever, so they knew they had more money coming to them soon. You know, they're doing all right, but... Now dad's starting to give some uh, some of his other properties away to other people who are not named, you know, uh, Lizzie or, or Emma. So I'm guessing this is making them a little nervous about their inheritance. You know, another possible mur- uh, murder motive for sure. Well, uh, a week before the murders, the end of July, 1892, Lizzie stayed in a local boarding house in Fall River for four days after she came home from New Bedford. Remember, she's, she was pissed about those pigeons. Uh, still mad with daddy and stepmommy. Also, the week before the murders, uh, the entire family gets sick. Uh, you know, or the few days before the murders, right? Right when everybody is back home. Uh, also, the living maid Bridget, she gets sick. Abby visits a, a neighbor who was a doctor the week before her death, complaining that she thought they may have all been uh, poisoned. The doctor assumed it was something they had eaten. Lizzie told uh, another neighbor and friend Alice that she thought someone had poisoned their milk. She said she'd seen a strange man hanging around the house and barn recently. On August third, eighteen ninety-two, the day before the murders of Andrew and Abby, uh, John Vincent Morse, Emma and Lizzie's maternal uncle. Uh, visits and is invited to stay for a few days to discuss business matters with Andrew. And there are theories uh, that this visit could have led to the murders. John visited with the Bordens frequently in the two years leading up to the murders, and it was not uncommon for him to show up uh, for unplanned overnight visits. He was a short train right away, didn't always send word ahead when he came to see Andrew. A week before the tragedy, Andrew had been in contact with John about a man who qualified to manage the family's uh, Swansea farm. Andrew insisted that John could come talk to him in person, and on the afternoon of August 3rd, 1892, John arrived without luggage or a change of clothes at the Borden home. His arrival occurred just uh, as the couple was finishing their dinner. While some Borden enthusiasts have painted John's visit as mysterious and, and John as being a possible suspect, odds are the two men just wanted to catch up on business. At the trial in 1893, John even produced on the witness stand Andrew's letter that had called him to Fall River that day. A uh, document that was promptly appropriated by District Attorney Nelton, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it was it was read in court. Everybody, everybody saw. Uh, John had also wanted to do some uh, oxen trading in Swansea. Andrew asked him uh, to fetch some eggs from their farm while he was over there. He invited his brother-in-law back for supper. John declined, hoping to catch up a uh, uh, catch his evening meal with another relative in Swansea. He he hurried to Kirby Stables, went about his business across the river, returning at eight forty-five that evening, just as Andrew was sitting down with his newspapers in the sitting room. And as the two men talked, Lizzie Borden returned from a visit with her friend Alice Russell. But her uncle and dad did not see her come in. Instead, they just heard the door close and footsteps raced upstairs in a retreat to Lizzie's bedroom. And the two men continued their conversation. And there has been some speculation that Lizzie, whose room was just over the sitting room, could have heard their talk through open windows. 
And this speculation has led some to theorize that Lizzie overheard some secret business which she was not supposed to be privy to uh, and that the news provoked in her a murderous rage that led to a premeditated act of violence. Now, this is pure speculation. Whatever she heard or didn't hear, by 10 o'clock p.m., the two men had retired to their uh, respective bedrooms with John settling down in the guest room in the northwest corner of the house. Uh, This was the room Abby was to be found slaughtered in the very next afternoon. Lizzie would later primarily stick to the story that some enemy had killed her father. She would say that it was probably some enemy he had made through uh, business dealings. And who could this enemy be? Well, Lizzie named some names during her initial inquest with uh, police investigators. Uh, actually, actually, she only named one name. And then she uh, also mentioned some mysterious angry man she couldn't identify, who supposedly visited her father a few weeks uh, earlier, roughly. Uh, real or convenient product of her imagination to give the police and then later the jury another suspect to consider. The following is a little bit of, uh, from the transcript of the initial inquest. Well, they asked Lizzie, do you know of anybody that your father was on bad terms with? There was a man that came there that he had trouble with. I don't know who that man was. When? I cannot locate the time exactly. It was within two weeks. That is, I don't know the date or day of the month. Tell all you saw and heard. I did not see anything. I heard the bell ring and father went to the door and let him in. I did not hear anything for some time except just the voices. Then I heard the man say, I would like to have that place. I would like to have that store. Father said, I am not willing to let your business go in there. And the man said, I thought with your reputation for liking money, you would let your store for anything. Father said, you are mistaken. Then they talked a while and then their voices were louder. And I heard father order him out and went to the front door with him. What did he say? He said he had stayed long enough and he would thank him to go. Did he say anything about coming again? No, sir. Did your father say anything about coming again or did he? No, sir. Have you any idea who that was? No, sir. I think it was a man from out of town because he said he was going home to see his partner. Have you had any efforts made to find him? We had a detective. That is all I know. You have not found him. Not that I know of. You can't give us uh, any other idea about it. Nothing but what I've told you. Besides that, do you know of anybody that your father had bad feelings towards or who had bad feelings towards your father? I know of one man who has not been friendly with him. They have not been friendly for years. Who? Mr. Hiram C. Uh, uh, Mr. Hiram C. Harrington. What relation is he to him? He is my father's brother-in-law. Your mother's brother. My father's only sister married Mr. Harrington. Anybody else that was on bad terms with your father or that your father was on bad terms with? Not that I know of. So, I don't know. So, you know, she just, she's a lot, a lot of vague answers. Now, now, let's go to the day of the murders. So, she's you now she's been, she's, there's possibilities like, is it some, you know, mystery man? What's going on? Are there people mad at him? Uh, I'll comment more on it later. I don't, I don't think so. It, it, you'll see that her, her testimony is kind of all over the place and she contradicts herself. And uh, it, it, it seems like bullshit to me, in my gut. Um, now let's, but yeah, let's go to the day of the murders. August 4th, 1892. Abby and Andrew Borden murdered in their home that morning. Uh, Abby murdered between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. Andrew murdered between 10.30 and 11.10 a.m. Brother-in-law John Morse had slept in the guest room, as we said, the night before, and Abby had went up that morning to make the bed after he left. Abby was facing her killer when she was attacked based on the evidence that she was struck first on the side of the head with a hatchet, forming a cut just above her ear. Uh, she didn't have to be facing it, but there's a good chance. Then she'd probably, they think she turned, fell face down on the floor, after which point her killer struck her many times, delivering 17 additional direct hits to her head. Uh, to the back of her head, odds are she didn't live past the first blow or first few blows. Just Jesus, man. Uh, 18 hits to the, to the fucking head with an axe. Direct shots. To me, that seems like either the work of some axe-loving serial killer or a crime of passion. 
you know, in the sense that somebody like, you know, you're attacked by someone who knows you to build up that much anger towards you. Uh, <laughs> or someone, I guess, who just really loves smashing people's heads in with an axe. Um, now, were there any other axe murders in Fall River, Massachusetts, around the time of the Borden murders? Yes, uh, there actually was, and this would come up at trial, but uh, it shouldn't have, in my opinion, and you'll see why here. On the morning of May 31st, 1893, less than a year after Lizzie's father and stepmother were killed with an axe, or, you know, a hatchet, uh, the mutilated remains of 22-year-old Bertha Manchester are found in her home on New Boston Road in Fall River. Uh, she'd been hacked 23 times in the back of her skull and uh, or between the back of her skull and, and the base of the back of her skull. So, so 23 shots around the back of her head. Her head was obliterated. Also like the board murders, the crime occurred in broad daylight. But unlike the board murders, there was a uh, defensive wounds suggesting she put up a fight with her attacker. Uh, also, uh, unlike the Borden murders, her watch and a purse containing some money was stolen. And unlike the Borden killings, the murder weapon was found at the crime scene for sure. The bloody axe just laying outside by the wood pile. Still very strange, right? Uh, seems like the cases could be easily connected, right? Probably not. Uh, the man who was convicted of killing Bertha, a Portuguese hired hand of her husband named Jose de Mello, didn't even arrive in the United States, uh, probably de Mayo, Jose de Mayo, uh, until April 1893. So he, he couldn't have committed the Borden murders. He was not even in the country. However, uh, the evidence used to convict him was kind of flimsy. The prosecution's key piece of evidence was a testimony of the owner of a local store who claimed that DeMeo uh, bought a new pair of shoes from him shortly after the murder and tried to pay with a trade dollar and a plugged half dollar, which were some distinctive coins known to be in the purse stolen from Bertha. So I don't know, maybe he did it. Or I guess there is the possibility that some unknown axe murderer killed all three people and got away with it. Uh, and I don't know of any other future axe murders or previous axe murders occurring in Fall River. Nothing that I could find through a lot, of, a lot of looking. So while we may never know conclusively who killed Andrew and Abby, we do know for sure they were killed with this hatchet. Here, here are the results of uh, Abby's autopsy. It says, autopsy of Abby D. Borden, age 64 years. Thursday, August 11th, 1892, 12.35 p.m. Conducted one week after death. The autopsy performed by W.A. Dolan, medical examiner, assisted by Dr. F.W. Draper and witnessed by F.W. Draper of Boston and J.H. Leary of Fall River. Da -da -da -da. Uh, body uh, that of a female, very well nourished and a very fleshy 64 years of age. <laughs> uh, wow. What a clinical and pleasant way to call someone fat. Uh, you know, <laughs> doctor, would you say that uh, Mrs. Borden was chubby or fat? H heavens no. Heavens to Betsy. I would never say such coarse words about Mrs. Borden. I'm offended by your very question. Fat? No. Oh, how dare you? She was, well, she, she was very well nourished. She didn't, uh, she didn't miss a lot of meals. Didn't push away a lot of plates. She was, uh, in a word, I would say fleshy. Uh, maybe two words. She was very fleshy, one might say. She had approximately double the necessary amount of flesh to live for a woman of her frame and height. <coughs> mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if a very fleshy spinster is an adult film category, by the way. Uh, ah, sorry, I'm going to move on. Uh, anyway, M uh, Mrs. Borden, diving back into the official report now. Uh, five feet, three inches in height. No stiffness of death. Owing to decomposition, which was far advanced. Abdomen had already been opened. Artificial teeth and upper jaw. No marks of violence on front of body. On back of body was, first, an incised wound two and two and a half inches in length and two and two and a half inches in depth. Oh, no, and two and a half inches in depth. 
The lower angle of the wound was over her spine and four inches below the junction of her neck with body and extending thence upward and outward to the left. On the forehead and bridge of nose were three contused wounds, those on the forehead being oval lengthwise with body. When I first read that last part, I thought it said confused. Uh, my brain just tra- just turned into that, just like three confused words. Uh, contused means a wound that doesn't break the skin, like uh, rather causes like bruises, which which makes a lot more sense than a, a lot more sense than a confused wound. Just what are those wounds there on the face, doctor? Well, those wounds are confused. Uh, they can't decide if they're lacerations or contusions or burns or bone breaks or even paper cuts. Those particular wounds are done within a bag of rocks. Uh, second, the contusion on bridge of nose was one inch in length by one half inch in width. Third, on the forehead was one inch above left eyebrow, one and one fourth inches long by three eighth inch in width. The other one and one fourth inches above eyebrow and one and a half inches long by quarter inch wide. On the head, there were 18 distinct wounds, incising and crushing, and all but four were on the right side. Counting from left to right with the face downwards, the wounds were as follows. One, was a glancing scalp wound, two inches in length by one and one half inches in width, situated three inches above the left ear hole, cut from above downwards and did not penetrate the skull. Two, exactly on top of the skull, one inch long, penetrating into it, but not through the skull. Three, was parallel to number two, one and a half inches long and penetrating through the skull. And it just goes on like that to describe a total of 18 different blows. Doctors would say that the first blow likely killed her, uh, and then the rest of the report breaks the body into different sections to describe the wounds, like uh, head. There was a hole in the right side of skull, four and a half to five and one quarter inches, through which the brain evacuated in fluid condition being entirely decomposed. Jesus. Wow. Oh, sorry to anyone trying to eat right now while listening. Man, my God, that is, that is the kind of sense that, uh, that makes you give up on a bowl of oatmeal. The brain evacuated in fluid condition being entirely decomposed. Check, please. Uh, I'm done. Uh, I'm done eating now. Chest. The chest and abdomen were opened by one incision from chin to pubis. Now, this is because uh, they had just taken out the stomach to have it examined for, for poison. Lungs bound down behind, but normal. Heart, normal. Abdomen. Stomach and part of bowel had been removed. Yeah, again, they just removed. Uh, yeah, they, rem- they removed. Or, or, yeah, stuff to examine her organs. Um now, back to the timeline for a moment. Uh, and they didn't find anything, actually, by the way, too. Uh, they found the, uh, the, they didn't find any trace of poison in their systems. So Andrew and, and Morse went to the sitting room after breakfast, uh, where they chatted for an hour, the morning of the murders, August 4th, around 7.30 a.m. And then Morse left to visit a relative at 8.48 a.m. Andrew went to, uh, for a morning walk at a little after 9 a.m. He returned at 10.30 a.m., Possibly as late as 10.45 a.m., but his key was not unlocking the door, so he knocked to get someone inside to let him in. Bridget, Maggie Sullivan, the Borden's live-in maid, tried to unjam the door but couldn't and cursed, after which point Bridget testified that she heard Lizzie laughing from upstairs. Now, this is a significant detail because Abby's body was visible through the gap between the bed and the floor when viewed climbing the stairs, but at the top of the stairs, her body would have been hidden by the bed. And, uh, and she had to have been killed before Andrew got home. Uh, you know, it just, I mean, it makes sense that Andrew would hear someone in the house being killed with an ax if he was home. Um, and, and then she, you know, she, she, she so if, if Lizzie would have been upstairs on the way upstairs, she would have seen the body. Uh, Lizzie would later testify that her father asked where, uh, asked her where Abby was when he returned home. And Lizzie replied that a messenger came with a letter asking Abby to visit a sick friend. Lizzie stated that she helped remove her father's boots. 
and brought him his slippers before he lay down on the sofa for a nap. However, in the photo of him dead, uh, which you can find online uh, from the crime scene, his shoes are visible on his body. So that, that's not good. That doesn't look good compared to her testimony. And who is this messenger? This is one of the biggest things in the story to me that just makes me think that Lizzie Borden was completely full of shit and that she did it. What friend of Abby's was sick? This is never revealed, which is incredibly suspicious. Uh, if this had happened, then Abby would have been at a friend's house, right? That morning instead of the truth, which was that she stayed home and got murdered. So it, it seems like Lizzie's lying through her teeth when she talks about some mysterious messenger and a sick friend. Uh, that would never be revealed. Also, you know, uh, Abby claimed to spend a lot of time in the morning of the murders uh, in the, or I'm sorry, Lizzie uh, claimed to spend a lot of time the morning of the murders in the barn uh, behind the house where the pigeons used to be. Do it, doing what? Like who just hangs out in an abandoned pigeon coop? Investigators would examine the barn loft that hot August day and say that the heat was stifling and that no one in the right mind, actually that's a quote, no one in the right mind would spend any time up there that morning. Also, Lizzie would tell investigators that she had gone up into the barn to look for lead to make sinkers for an upcoming fishing trip that no one but Lizzie knew about. Also, investigators would report that there were no footprints in the loft, just a bunch of dust and cobwebs. Didn't look like anyone had been up there in a while. That looks really bad. The more you learn about Lizzie and the testimony from both her and others about her behavior and whereabouts, I mean, the guiltier she looks. Um... Now, to be fair, Lizzie was not the only person home at the time of the murders. There was also 26-year-old Irish maid, Bridget uh, Sullivan. And Lizzie had told Bridget that there was a, a department store sale and gave her permission to go to it that morning. But Bridget didn't feel well, so she chose to take a nap in her bedroom instead. And her room was directly above Andrew Jackson's room. Uh, and <laughs> Andrew Jackson Borden's room. Uh, Bridget, also known as Maggie, to Lizzie and Emma, claimed she was in her third-floor bedroom resting when about 11, 10 a.m. she heard Lizzie call out from downstairs. Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Someone came and killed him. Uh, Andrew was lying prone on the couch in the downstairs parlor where he had been struck, you know, 10 or 11 times with a hatchet-like weapon. One of his eyeballs had been split cleanly in two, which seems to indicate, along with his body position, that he was probably asleep when he was attacked. Since if you're awake, you would most likely, you know, turn your face when the axe is, is coming for it. Uh, when Lizzie and Bridget arrive, He's still bleeding out. So it's safe to stay, say he was killed somewhere close to 11 a.m., considering uh, he hadn't gotten home until 10.30, 10.45 a.m., uh, and needed time to settle in and fall asleep for him to end up with his eyeball cut cleanly in two. And, and, and Abby had been killed a little before 10.30 a.m. at the very latest. Right, The coroner placed her time of death uh, you know, somewhere between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. And considering no one had seen her since sometime shortly before 9 a.m., you know, it, it wasn't like her to spend all morning quietly upstairs. Common sense dictates she probably died closer to 9 a.m. than to 10.30 a.m., which means that the killer savagely and literally bashed her brains in with an axe. And then if it's not Lizzie, or I guess, or I guess Bridget, just hides in the house for at least, you know, I don't know, half an hour, but probably closer to two hours, uh, and then pops out and bashes in her father's head and then vanishes, leaving no bloody footprints, no bloody murder weapon, you know, no one saw some bloody person walking down the streets of Fall River that day. So, you know, easy to see why Lizzie ends up getting arrested. Now, now here's Andrew's autopsy report. This is uh, his. Um, <laughs> uh, actually, the, the doctor described him, body that of a man well-nourished. Or I guess the coroner did. Body that of a man well-nourished. Here we go with their strange coroner speak again, man. Interesting that they went with well-nourished instead of the very well-nourished they used with Abby. So, you know, I guess not chubby, but not skinny either. I hope some corner makes a note that my corpse appears well-nourished someday. 
Uh, that seems to be about the best you can hope for. Actually, uh, fit and muscular. Fit and mu- just nourished enough. That's what I want to uh, do. Spend more time trying to develop a, a fit and muscular, just nourished enough corpse. Uh, I wonder what the worst corpse condition is. Maybe extremely overfed. Body that of a man extremely overfed. Extremely fleshy. Excessively fleshy. Man possessed in abundance of flesh. Uh, okay, so back to Andrew's report. It says age 70 years. Five feet, 11 inches in height. No stiffness of death on account of decomposition, which was far advanced. Uh, hernia on right side. Abdomen had already been opened. Artificial teeth and upper jaw. There were no marks of violence on body, but on left side of head and face, there were numerous incised wounds and one contused wound penetrating into the brain. Again, first time I saw this, brain reads confused, even though we just went over that. How do these people have so many confused wounds? Who is so confused about these wounds? Uh, Me, I am. I'm the only one confused about the contusions. Uh, The wounds to Mr. Andrew Jackson Borden, beginning at the nose and to the left, were as follows. One. Incised wound four inches long, beginning at lower border of left nasal bone and reaching to lower edge of lower jaw. Cutting through nose, Jesus, upper lip, lower lip, and slightly into bone of upper and lower jaw. Two, began at internal angle of eye and extended to one and three-eighth inches of lower edge of jaw, beginning four and a half inches in length, cutting through the tissues and into bone. Three, began at lower border of lower eyelid, cutting through the tissues and into the cheekbone, two inches long and one and three-eighths inches deep. Four, began two inches above upper eyelid, half-inch external to wound number three, thence downward and outward through middle of left eyebrow, through the eyeball, cutting it completely in halves and excising a piece of the skull, one and a half inches in length by half-inch in width, length of wound, four and a half inches. And it just goes on like that for six more wounds. And, uh, and like Abby, uh, or with Abby, the first wound probably killed him. And here are the summaries of the, of the regions, or each of the regions of the body. Head, right half of top of skull removed, brain found to be completely decomposed and in fluid condition. Chest and abdomen, opened by one incision extending from neck to pubis. Right lung glued to ribs in front, left lung normal, heart normal. Abdomen, you know, everything normal, and then except for some stuff taken out to be tested for, uh, for poison, which again, you know, nothing was found. Uh, you can look at photos taken of the Andrew and Abby, or taken of Andrew and Abby at the crime scene, and it's pretty brutal, as you would imagine. I mean, again, their heads have been just fucking annihilated. Abby struck 18 times with a hatchet. Andrew stuck, uh, uh, struck 10 or 11 times. Total overkill with both. No defensive wounds. Andrew literally did not see the attacker coming. Someone snuck up behind Abby or, you know, possibly as you know, she might have turned around for a second and seen them as they just smack her with that first blow and then just rain terror down upon her. And then again, you like waited, what, for half an hour to two hours, you know, and then, you know, attack somebody else. Also interesting, nothing was stolen from the Borden residence that day. No signs of forced entry. And while I clearly wasn't there and did not see Lizzie do it, uh, it does seem uh, like if she didn't do it, Whoever did it must have been someone, you know, welcome in the home. A family member, a family friend, maybe Bridget, perhaps, although she was never serious, uh, considered a serious suspect. Uh, no historians point to her as the murderer. Maybe, possibly, the ghosts of those murdered pigeons all working together pulled it off. Bunch of shadow pigeons with little shadow hatchets. Terrifying. Uh, no, but, you know, the Bordens, t- uh, technically, uh, I keep saying hatchet and axe. Yeah, they were not struck with an axe, even though that's what the nursery rhymes say. It was a, a hatchet was the murder weapon. This is a smaller axe. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, okay. Back to the timeline. 11, 10 a.m. Lizzie screams. 
back there upon seeing her dead father, Bridget the maid, a.k.a. Maggie, rushes over and sees Andrew and then runs out of the house and across the street to alert a doctor what has happened. Uh, and, and this is an interesting note about just uh, Bridget. Why was she called Maggie sometimes? Well, because the previous uh, previous maid's name was Maggie. That's got to make you feel good. You, you got to know you're truly just another servant to somebody uh, that, that they make, you know, they make it very clear they don't give a shit about you as a human being when, they, when they're just so lazy they call you the name of the previous mate. And she had worked for them for for quite some time, from what I gathered. Uh, and they just didn't feel like learning the name Bridget's, you know? They didn't even bother calling her like new Maggie or Maggie Do. Anyway, Bridget gets the doctor, Dr. Seabury Warren Bowen, uh, who rushes over to see the bodies. What a name. You can call me Dr. Warren if that is what you feel comfortable with, or you can call me what my friends call me. Dr. Seabury Warren Bowen, Reverend Dr. Seabury Warren Bowen IV, Esquire, PhD, Notary Public. Uh, anyway, the police were not far behind Dr. Bowen, one of the other neighbors having alerted the police after hearing Lizzie screams and seeing Bridget run screaming out of the house to get Dr. Bowen. Uh, the police arrive approximately 11.45 a.m. Some speculate Dr. Bowen may have helped Lizzie get away with the murder. Uh, he may have been fond of her. He had taken her to church when her parents were out of town, unchaperoned, scandal. He may have peeked at her bosom once or twice uh, during the church service, that perverse animal, the horny scallywag. But seriously, he wandered in and out of the uh, of the crime scene, just wandered in and out back and forth between his house and the boarding house numerous times that day. Actually, a fair amount of uh, of neighbors would wander just in and out of the crime scene that day, uh, which would cause further problems at the trial. The police work in the Borden case was an absolute shit show. They were just not prepared for a crime like this. Uh, when Lizzie was questioned by police that day, her answer is very odd. Like I said earlier, sometimes contradictory. Uh, she first reported having heard a groan scraping noise or some kind of distress call before she entered the house. But then two hours later, she heard, she said she heard nothing and she entered the house, not knowing anything was wrong. Those are very, very different answers, like extremely different answers. Uh, here's another example of Lizzie's strange, confused answers taken straight from the notes of the initial police inquest. When did Morse come here first? I don't mean this visit. I mean, as a visitor, John V. Morse. Do you mean this day that he came and stayed all night? no, was this visit the first to your house? He has been in the East a year or more. Since he has been in the East, has he been in the habit of coming to your house? Yes, he came in any time he wanted to. Before that, had he been at your house before he came East? Yes, he has been here. If you remember the winter that the river was frozen over and they went across, he was here that winter, some 14 years ago, was it not? I am not answering questions, but asking them. I, I don't remember the date he was here that winter. Has he been here since? He has been here once since. I don't know whether he has or not since. How many times this last year has he been at your house? None at all to speak of. Nothing more than a night or two at a time. Oh my God, what an infuriating, maddening person to talk to. Does your uncle come over often? He never comes over. Well, that's not true, is it? Considering he came over just last night. Is that the only time he's ever visited? Yes, but... Also, maybe other times. <sighs> so, he has come over before then. No, never. But yes, occasionally he stops by. Dear God, Lizzie, which is it? Never or sometimes? Uh, always. He always comes over. He lives with us. He lives with you? Really? No, not really. But you just said he did. But it, it wasn't what I meant. What did you mean, Lizzie? I meant he always never sometimes comes over. Oh, also, I like pickles. They're incredibly crunchy for something so wet. 
Uh, yeah, she really was just odd. I mean, and, and this is, there are so many examples I could have used there of like her, her answers in the inquest, her answers on trial. They're all over the fucking map. Like she comp- contradicts herself continually. Uh, you know, there's like more question. How often did he come to spend a night or two? Really? I don't know. I am away so much by myself. Your last answer is that you don't know how much she had been here because you had been away yourself so much. Yes. That is true the last year or since he has been east? I have not been away the last year so much, but other times I have been away when he has been here. Do I understand you to say that this is his last visit before this one was 14 years ago? No, he has been here once between the two. Yeah, and just on and on and on. So that's fun. Was she she being intentionally uh, confusing and contradictory? Who knows? So much about Lizzie is not known. Uh, Lizzie told police she, she thought her stepmother had gone to visit a sick friend, as we said, returned back to the house, asked if someone could go look for her, seemingly not knowing she was dead. Bridget and her neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, were halfway up the stairs, their eyes level with the floor when they looked into the guest room and saw Abby dead on the floor. This, of course, is after Bridget had run across the street to fetch the doctor. When the doctor came over, he initially thought just Andrew was dead. Now we're discovering Abby is dead. Most of the police who interviewed Lizzie said they didn't like her attitude, that she seemed too calm and too poised, and obviously contradictory. Uh, and also, this is very unfortunate. No one thoroughly checked her for bloodstains. Not really. They glanced her over. You know, they, they looked at uh, exposed skin, which wasn't much. No thorough inspection. It just didn't feel proper for them to do so. She was a young maiden of some means. And this all happened in the last decade of the Victorian era that had begun back in 1837, an especially sexist period of history. While women of the lower classes were joining the workforce, you know, due to the industrial uh, era, women of the middle and upper classes in the Victorian era were viewed as only domestic creatures. Their duty was, above all, to be chaste, virginal, a master of manners, proper etiquettes, uh, a hostess and lady of the manor, and a mother. You know, a dutiful wife and mother. The moral center of the home and her husband's greatest champion and basically basically a faithful servant of the husband. And these women were not seen as being morally capable of a crime like the Borden Axe murder. Some Victorian era Christian woman just couldn't do that. It was just inconceivable for Lizzie to do what she actually probably did do. Uh, women also weren't being seen as being intellectually uh, capable of planning something like those murders. You know, most police, all of whom were men, all of whom were men of lower means than the, the Bordens, no matter what they uh, privately privately may have suspected, would not publicly aggressively push to tear uh, through her things or thoroughly inspect her person for evidence. It just wasn't proper. Uh, Lizzie Borden, if she did kill her parents, was one of the few women to to greatly benefit from being looked at as a weak, inferior creature by the men of her day. Uh, and maybe there was, you know, uh, blood on Lizzie, even visible blood that the uh, in- investigators just couldn't see. Uh, because, you know, in addition to not having modern forensic and investigative technology back then, contacts hadn't been invented and the people couldn't see shit. Which brings me to today's final sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you by Simple Contacts. Simple Contacts lets you conveniently renew your contact lens prescription, reorder your contacts from anywhere in minutes, right from the app. It's vision care for the 21st century, which is way better than vision care in the 19th century. Uh, The Simple Contacts vision test is self-guided. Takes less than five minutes. Doesn't involve uh, either an axe or a hatchet, which is the best kind of eye exam. Way better than Andrew Borden's eye exam. Uh, It isn't a replacement for your periodic full uh, eye health exam, but it will save you so much time when you need to renew and reorder. It's designed by uh, ophthalmologists and a licensed doctor uh, reviews every test so you skip the office visit, but not the care. Simple Contacts has all the brands and types of lenses you're familiar with so you, you never have to shop around, find your lenses at the very best price. 
Uh, best of all, simple contact saves you money. The vision test is only 20 bucks. 20 bucks. Their contact lens prices are unbeatable. Standard shipping is free. I found it very, very easy to use, and so did Lindsay. Queen of the suck and a daily contact wear. Lindsay's a busy bee, and anything that can save her time helps our family a ton, and simple contact saves her time, which means she can do more for the family, which means I can do more for the suck. Win, win, win. We both found the app very easy to use, and we save money. So how about you save some money? Get $20 off your contacts at simplecontacts.com slash timesuck20 or enter your code timesuck20 at checkout. That's simplecontacts.com slash timesuck20 or enter code timesuck20 at checkout to get $20 off your contacts. Link in the episode description or push the simple contact button in the app or click on it at uh, timesuckpodcast.com to go straight to the deal. And now back to Borden. Those 19th century police uh, did do a search of Lizzie's room, but only an initial inspection didn't uncover anything. They didn't really probably look uh, that hard. See, if they they only had those fucking contacts. At the trial, they admitted to not doing a complete search, partially also because Lizzie was not feeling well. She asked if she could go to her room. She wasn't feeling well. Basically, could they not bother her? Uh, The prosecution did seem to criticize him for that lack of follow through there. Had a man been suspected? Oh, he would not have been able to pull off the old. Can you can you come back later and inspect my room for evidence that I just killed my parents? I I'm a little ill and I would like to lie down for a while and get rid of evidence. Uh, I truly believe that. Yeah. Had Lizzie been a man, man, she would have been she would have been uh, hanged in the basement. Police found two hatches or hatchets, excuse me, two axes uh, and a hatch and a hatchet with a broken handle, which was suspected of being the murder weapon because the break looked fresh. Uh, and also one of the axes uh, had hair and blood on it, but they ruled it was cow blood. I don't know how they could make a conclusive determination of that without uh, being able to differentiate cow blood from human blood at the time. Also, the ash and dust on the broken hatchet, which people did suspect to be the murder weapon, appeared smeared on to make it look like the hatchet had just been in the basement for a while, when in fact it could have been used very, very recently. Uh, Jesus, man, that's very damning. And then probably because they didn't want to bother two young maidens who had just lost their parents, none of these items are removed from the house. Only later is the broken hatchet taken. And of course, fingerprint identification, not a thing. So prints not taken from any of the weapons or elsewhere. Just, you know, I said it so many times here on the suck, man. So much easier to get away with shit back then. If the police find that ax today, find that hatchet today, it's brought in for testing. And so are you. And if one tiny invisible like speck of your parents' blood is on your clothes and it's on the axe and your fingerprints are on the axe, uh, overwhelming odds you're not sleeping in your own bed that night. Uh, that night, police are stationed around the house. One police officer reported seeing Lizzie enter the basement and look at the pails containing her parents' bloody clothes. Though that actually was never explained. I don't know what was going on there. Why weren't those clothes brought in? You know, maybe searching for something, some kind of evidence of, a, of an intruder's, I don't know, hair or DNA or something else. People had no way of assessing that again. God dang it. 1892 technology. You made it so hard on police investigators. Uh, on August 6th, two days after the murders, a police officer and the mayor pay Lizzie a visit, explain she's a suspect in the murders, and then let her stay home, stay just at the open crime scene, give her plenty of time to reflect on her defense and destroy lots of evidence if, if need be. Like the dress she was probably wearing the day she murdered her parents. Seriously, the next morning, August 7th, Alice Russell, a neighbor, enters the kitchen to find Lizzie tearing up a dress. Uh, Lizzie said that she was putting it in the fire. Because it was covered in paint. Uh Uh-huh. Unknown whether she was wearing this dress during the murders, but probably, probably. And and at first I thought maybe this was common. Maybe people just burned their clothes back then. And I actually Googled, did people burn their clothes a lot in the 19th century? And then Bojangles flew across the suck dungeon and slapped me right out of my chair. He said, it's good to be curious, but it's bad to be dumb. And then he growled 
And then, and, you know, he stared at me till I peed a little. And then he went back to watching uh, old Charles Bronson Death Wish movies and occasionally giving me a dismissive side glance. No, it does not appear. This is how people got rid of clothes when they no longer wanted to wear them back then. That wasn't common. You, you weren't like, oh, I don't feel like wearing this anymore, so just let's tear it up and burn it. Uh, it seems that while local governments were just starting to take responsibility for waste management in the 1890s, uh, prior to that, people were burning paper waste and burning other types of waste in remote areas of the property. Uh, but burning one dress, especially not as part of some uh, garbage day burning ritual, very suspicious. Not what people did, especially under these circumstances. Her neighbor, Alice, told her that burning the dress looked, you know, really, really bad. Uh, when Alice was later questioned by police and told them about uh, Lizzie burning the dress, this is what prompted the judge, Judge Blaisdell of uh, Second uh, District Court of Massachusetts, to charge Lizzie with murder. And then Alice would never be friendly again with Lizzie after the whole dress burning fiasco. Uh, Lizzie's sister, Emma, would later testify that it was her idea to burn the dress, not Lizzie's. Uh, she would maintain, Emma would, that she believed in Lizzie's innocence the rest of her life, but supposedly she confessed to relatives on her deathbed that she did lie about the dress. Uh, during the trial to help her sister out. She was just worried that that would look really bad and she'd be found guilty and hanged. And, and you know, and she didn't want that. I, I'm sure partly because Lizzie's the only immediate family member she now has left. Well, the inquest hearing takes place on August 8th. Uh, Lizzie's request to have her family attorney present is refused under the state statute that said an inquest could be held in private. Lizzie, Lizzie also uh, had been given regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves. So it is possible that some of her confusion, her contradicting answers, you know, could come from the morphine. I don't know, though. I mean, maybe, you know, think things slowly, but it's like she was beyond confused. Uh, here's some more of her testimony. Uh, she's asked, what had you in mind when you said you were on the stairs as Maggie let your father in? The other day, someone came here and, and she let them in and I was on the stairs. I don't know whether the morning before or when it was. Like, what the fuck? Just at one, at one point in your life when someone came in, you were on the stairs. So you're like, I must have been on the stairs because that's where I am when Maggie tends to open the door. Like, that's nonsense. You understood I was asking you exactly and explicitly about this fatal day, though. Yes, sir. I now call your attention to the fact that you had specifically told me you had gone upstairs and had been there about five minutes when the bell rang and were on your way down and were on the stairs when Maggie let your father in that day. Yes, I said that. And then I said I did not know whether I was on the stairs or in the kitchen. Now, how will you have it? I think, as nearly as I know, I think I was in the kitchen. How long was your father gone? I don't know, sir. Not very long. An hour? I should not think so. Will you give me the best story you can, so far as your recollection serves you, of your time while he was gone? I sprinkled my handkerchiefs and got my ironing board and took them in the dining room. I took the ironing board in the dining room and left the handkerchiefs in the kitchen, on the table, and whether I ate any cookies or not, I don't remember. Then I sat down looking at the magazine, waiting for the flats to heat. Then I went in the sitting room and got the Providence Journal and took that into the kitchen. I don't recollect of doing anything else. Which did you read first, the journal or the magazine? Uh, the magazine. You told me you were reading the magazine when your father came back. I, I said in the kitchen, yes. Was that so? Yes, I took the journal out to read it and had not read it. It was near me. You said a minute or two ago you read the magazine a while and then went and got the journal and took it out to read. I did, but I, I did not read it. I tried, I tried my flats then. And went back to reading the magazine. I uh, took the magazine up again, yes. So again, it's just like, <laughs> I'm sure it's hard to recall like details. I don't have the best memory, but I would like to think that I wouldn't just give like, you know, constant, just contradictory answers. You know, like if something happened, like, were you in the house or in the yard? I believe I was in the hammock uh, taking a nap. 
But yesterday you said you were mowing the front lawn. Oh, correct. I thought about the hammock, then mowed the... Actually, now that I really think about it, I was having lunch down the street. You were having lunch down the street? Or were you in the hammock and mowing the lawn? I was in the restaurant daydreaming about a hammock while remembering I should mow the lawn. Like, it's just fucking nonsense. August 11th, the week after the murders, Lizzie is served with a warrant of arrest and jailed. However, the inquest testimony, which most modern investigators take as the basis for her innocent, or, you know, for someone's innocent or guilt, was ruled inadmissible at trial in June of 1893. So now the jury doesn't get to hear about the poison she tried to buy. For example, you know, the day before, numerous other key points and all her weird contradictory statements. Why? Because her lawyer wasn't present during the inquest and the judge was weak. So the lawyer asked to have it dismissed because the lawyer wasn't there, even though in Massachusetts, you didn't have to have the attorney there legally. So a bunch of bullshit gets the inquest thrown out. On June 5th, 1893, 10 months after the murders, the trial begins on June 5th. Yeah, uh, New Bedford. Uh, I'm guessing there is usually a good reason for these long waits, but it always feels terribly unfair to me for someone who's been charged with a crime but not tried in court to have to sit in jail for months or years before their trial begins. Necessary evil, I guess, but God, there should be a legal limit. Like if the court can't fit you in six months, tops, well, then you get to go fucking home. Maybe they'll provide incentive for certain cases to fast track them. Uh, if, that's, if that's not practical, then we need to establish more courts, hire more judges until it is practical. Allocate some tax funds from somewhere else. Maybe go ahead and let some obscure but federally protected animal, too fragile to live much longer on its own anyway, just let that die and spend more money on courts. Now, I'm admittedly talking out of my ass here and half joking, but it, it is just terrifying to me. That you can be charged with a crime, later found innocent, uh, in some cases obviously innocent, only to go home to a destroyed life because you've been sitting in a jail for fucking years while your house goes into foreclosure, your retirement accounts, you know, empty. And then the stigma of the trial makes you virtually unemployable, lose a significant chunk of your freedom. And uh, and all you get after all that is essentially a, ah, whoops, sorry about that. Shit happens. Best of luck. Any hoozle. Uh, the prosecuting attorneys in the case... Hosea M. Knowlton, William H. Moody, uh, defending Lizzie, Andrew V. Jennings, Melvin Adams, George Robinson, one of the first witnesses for the prosecution, Uncle John, the guy who Lizzie remembered that sometimes never always visited, her father, from time to time, or maybe never, or maybe coming a decade ago, or maybe earlier, or maybe more recent. Uh, Here's an excerpt from John's testimony. Lizzie seemed unusual the day before Andrew and Abby's murders. I don't want to accuse her outright of the heinous act, but her actions were peculiar. She excused herself early from dinner, and then I found her near the pigeon coop, out behind the house, sharpening a a hatchet, mumbling to herself. When I inquired into why she was doing this, she simply stated, you'll see soon, you'll all see soon. Then, before I retired to my room that night, while conversing with both Andrew and Abby in the library, Lizzie walked in giggling, and pointed once at her father, and then once at her stepmother, using her free hand to make a slashing motion across her throat. Andrew told me not to worry, said she'd be doing that for weeks, and I thought no more of it and went to bed as she returned to the barn to sharpen her hatchet. Uh, of, course, of course he didn't say that. Can you imagine if he did say that? She was still trying to innocent. Uh, no, he said, I had not seen Lizzie at all from the time of my arrival on Wednesday until I returned to the house on Thursday after the murders. When I came back, Mr. Sawyer was at the door, and I think Bridget Sullivan, Dr. Bowen, and two or three policemen were in the house, and I think Mrs. Churchill and Miss Russell. Uh, also testifying was the family maid, uh, Bridget Maggie Sullivan. Here's a little what she said regarding the whereabouts of Lizzie between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. when Abby was murdered. I didn't see Ms. Lizzie anywhere about. I can't say exactly, but I think this was about 9 o'clock. Then I cleaned off my stove, went into the dining room and sitting room, shut the windows I was going to wash, and went down to the cellar and got a pail to take some water. 
I didn't see anybody in the rooms. So see, so she's walked all around the house. She's saying she doesn't see anybody there. I got a brush in the kitchen closet, filled my pail and took it outdoors. As I was outside, Lizzie Borden appeared in the back entry and says, Maggie, are you going to wash the windows? I says, yes. Uh, I says, you needn't lock the door. I will be out around here, but you can lock it if you want to. I can get the brush. I can't, excuse me. I can get the water in the barn. I went to the barn to get the handle for the brush. And this is very suspicious to me because, you know, as we already established, when Andrew came home, the door is locked. So why is the fuck, why is the door locked? Like there, she's outside, you know, it's like, it doesn't make sense. Uh, okay. And, and like, yeah. Okay. Now here's additional testimony from Bridget regarding where Lizzie was from 1030 to 1110 when Andrew was being murdered. She says, I began to wash the window next to the front door, had not seen anyone since I saw Lizzie at the screen door. Then I heard like a person at the door was trying to unlock the door, but could not. So I went to the front door and unlocked it. The spring lock was locked. I unbolted the door and it was locked with a key. There were three locks. I said, pusha, pusha. <laughs> and Ms. Lizzie laughed upstairs. Uh-huh. Her father was out there on the doorstep. She was upstairs. And again, important because if Lizzie really went upstairs, good chance she would have seen Abby's body lying on the floor. And again, what's with the door locking here? You know, clearly it seems unusual to have the door locked for Bridget in this situation because she's like, why is the door locked? Uh, well, it's fucking locked. Probably because someone inside is doing some murdering. Didn't want someone to walk in on the murdering. Uh, she must have been, she says, uh, she must have been either in the entry or at the top of the stairs. I cannot tell which. This is when she was giggling. Mr. Borden and I didn't say a word as he came in. I went back to my window washing. He came into the sitting room and went into the dining room. He had a little parcel in his hand, same as a paper or a book. He sat on a chair at the end of the lounge. Ms. Lizzie came downstairs and came to the front entry into the dining room, I suppose, to her father. All right. She's saying that she wasn't upstairs. I remember that testimony earlier. I heard her ask her father if he had any mail, and they had some talk between them, which I didn't understand, but I heard her tell her father that Mrs. Borden had a note and had gone out. This is that whole sick friend thing. The next thing I remember, Mr. Borden took a key off the mantelpiece and went back upsta- uh, went up the back stairs. When he came downstairs again, I was finished in the sitting room and I took my hand basin and stepped louder into the dining room. I began to wash the dining room windows. Then Ms. Lizzie brought an ironing board from the kitchen, put it on the dining room table and commenced to iron. She said, Maggie, are you going out this afternoon? I said, I don't know. I might and I might not. I don't feel very well. She says, if you go out, be sure and lock the door. I have some more murdering to do. Uh, no, she said, if, if I go out, be sure to lock the door for Mrs. Borden has gone out on a sick call and I might go out too. Uh-huh. She says, I, uh, Ms. Lizzie, who is sick? And she says, I don't know. She had a note this morning. It must be in town. I finished my two windows. She went on ironing. Then I went in the kitchen, washed out some clothes, hung them behind the stove. Ms. Lizzie came out there and said, there is a cheap sale of dress goods at Sargent's this afternoon at eight cents a yard. I don't know uh, that she said this afternoon, but today. Then I went upstairs to my room. I don't remember to have heard a sound of anyone about the house except those I named. Then I laid down in the bed. I heard the city hall bell ring and I looked at my clock and it was 11 o'clock. I wasn't drowsing or sleeping. In my judgment, I think there was three or four minutes. I don't think I went to sleep at all. I heard no sound. I didn't hear the opening or closing of the screen door. I can hear that from my room if anyone is careless and slams the door. See, that doesn't sound good. The next thing was that Ms. Lizzie hollered, Maggie, come down. I said, what is the matter? She says, come down quick. Father's dead. Someone came in and killed him. This might be 10 or 15 minutes after the clock struck 11, as far as I can judge. And this is like really damning testimony because she's saying that she fucking hears anyone coming into the house and she heard no one come in the house. This goes back to the thing of someone, apparently, if it's not Lizzie, based on this testimony, is just hiding in the house, waiting to quietly kill somebody. And if it it was someone like that he had a bad business dealing with, I mean, wouldn't you think human nature, this guy would be like, you motherfucker, I fucking kill you now. You know, just something. 
something other than saying nothing. So so you're you're calm enough to say nothing to someone that you hate enough to kill them with an axe, but then hit them so many fucking times with the axe. I just don't I just don't see where that why that would happen ever. Um so again, if Bridget's telling the truth, I mean, God, man. Uh seems like she's trying to get Bridget out of the house. It seems very guilty. She seems very guilty here. You have Bridget heard no one else come into the house. Um, so, so now we've, we've heard some testimony from the, you know, the prosecution side here. Now let's check in with the defense, their cross-examination of Bridget. Now here, they're trying to prove that someone else could have come into the house and murdered the Bordens. And they ask the screen door over the other side of the house was open, unlocked all that time. Yes, sir. Can you tell me any reason why a person should have, uh, could not have walked into the door and you not seen him? So they say, see, not here. Why? Of course he could have. Now this is so weak to me, but I get it. There was another door that was unlocked, so technically someone could have very quietly wandered in, killed Abby, uh, while I'm guessing covering themselves in blood. Then they could have hid in the guest room, just covered in blood, you know, and then you could have hacked Andrew to death, then just snuck out of the house covered in so much blood, uh, broad daylight, no neighbor notices. I mean, I mean, I guess they could have brought a change of clothes and just, what, casually change clothes in someone else's house, you know, after fucking two murders, then leave. Then leave. Uh also make no attempt to murder Lizzie or Bridget. Why wouldn't they kill them? That doesn't make any sense to me, you know? Uh, I mean, I guess in the world of just hypotheticals, you know, if like something just could have happened, uh, fucking Bigfoot could have killed him. Maybe the Jersey Devil. Maybe Mothman snuck in. Maybe warped in from another dimension. Killed them both. Maybe Shadow Person. Maybe it was the Hat Man. You know, that Shadow Person with a, with a hat. Always wearing. Maybe he just, uh, I don't know, maybe he also just hacks the shit out of people from time to time. Here are some more excerpts from Bridget's cross-examination uh, Bridget says, when I got back into the house after going for Ms. Russell, Ms. Lizzie was in the kitchen. After I came downstairs, she was on the lounge in the dining room. I did not see any blood on her, not on her face or hands or anywhere. As far as I can remember, her hair was in order. And they say, uh, you, you simply say that you didn't see anybody come in with a note. No, sir, I did not. Easy enough for anybody to come in with a note to the house and you not know it, wasn't it? Well, I, I don't know if a note came to the back door that I wouldn't know. But they wouldn't necessarily go to the back door, would they? No, I never heard anything about a note. Whether they got it or not, I don't know. Don't know anything about it. And so you don't undertake to say it wasn't there. No, sir. And this is, again, just to me, this defense attorney said, which I get you got to do. But it's like, you know, what Bridget is clearly saying is that it, it was it would be very, 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 very unusual for someone to come over and bring a note for Mrs. Borden, telling them that the friend was sick, you know, some messenger and the housemaid to know absolutely nothing about it. But just like Bigfoot could have done it, possible. Uh, yeah. And again, this is this mis- this is that mystery note regarding, you know, Mrs. Borden uh, that, that, uh, that, you know, the sick friend needs your help. And the sick friend is never identified, never comes forward. Uh, this alone, again, makes me think that Lizzie is guilty because the media attention for this trial would be insane on a national level. On the local level, even, even more so. You know, they compared it to the O.J. Simpson trial in terms of intrigue. I mean, just imagine the media attention right in that town. Uh, in Fall River. And and, it's, and and then 10 months since the trial. Jesus Christ. Fucking someone. God damn it. Oh, man. Get out of here. Okay, that's fun. Uh, get out of here. Uh, for those of you guys uh, hearing me, just uh, be scared. Someone sent in a creepy doll to the suck dungeon. And I, I'm guessing my mention of the shadow person uh, made them decide to, to go outside. So either, I didn't see the face, either Joe or Lindsay snuck outside 
with the creep, one of the creepiest dolls I've ever seen. Just a fan of the time suck. Oh my God. Uh, Joseph Lamar, he sent in the scariest looking demon doll like thing. And that little baby doll was just knocking up against the window. So that's, that's fun. That's fun. That's, this is why we're going to have video, uh, hopefully in, in the next few weeks of recording. So when you guys hear me scream and squeal, uh, you can see it if you want on YouTube. <laughs> okay. All right, man. Okay. That was, that was fun. Um, okay. So let's get back to this thing though, about this note, about the note. I mean, just think about that. Like 10 months, uh, since the murders, the trial begins. And in those 10 months, nobody ever comes forward to say, Hey, it was me who was sick. I really did send that note. Like what? So that, that makes no sense uh, unless you think that the mysterious note sender was the murderer. But who does that? Who's like, first, I shall send the family a messenger inviting Abby over. And if then if she, if she doesn't come at once to be killed here, I shall kill her and her husband at their homes with an axe. Then I will clean up the mess, then sneak back home and just trust that my messenger will never speak a word of this at the trial that will inevitably follow. It's, it's the perfect crime. <laughs> Get out of here. Reverend Dr. Seabury Bowen IV, Esquire, the Borden's physician, also testified at the trial. Some of his testimony was focused on where Lizzie was at the time of Mr. Borden's murder. Uh, I may, he says, I made no other examination at the time except to feel Andrew's pulse. Ms. Lizzie had followed me partway through the dining room, and as I went back to the kitchen, I asked her if she had seen anyone. She said, I have not. Then I asked her, where have you been? She replied, in the barn, looking for, <laughs> looking for some iron. Look, what? Looking for iron, looking for, get, trying to get that lead for the fishing trip. You're never going to go on. Uh-huh. Uh, the doctor also testified about giving morphine, you know, to deal with the shock and about how that could have added to the confusion answer she gave at her inquest. Um, and maybe that's, maybe that's, you know, I don't know, partly why the judge threw it out. Uh, next door neighbor, Adelaide B. Churchill, also testified at the trial, testified about coming to the house directly after hearing Bridget say that Mr. Borden was dead. Says, I went over and stepped inside the screen door. She was sitting on the chair. I put my hand on her arm and said, oh, Lizzie. Then I said, where is your father? She said, in the sitting room. And I said, where were you when it happened? And she said, I went to the barn to get a piece of iron. I said, where is your mother? She said, I don't know. She had to get a note to see someone who was sick. So she keeps going on with the note. She's saying that she's in the barn now, where then Bridget said she was upstairs. Get out of here. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, and also she said, um, father must have had an enemy, for we have all been sick and we think the milk would have been poisoned. Dr. Bowen is not at home, and I must have a doctor. I said, Lizzie, shall I go out and try to get a doctor? And she said, yes, and I went out. So again, interesting. Like, why would Lizzie suppose that Abby was dead too? Um, uh, maybe, I, maybe I skipped that uh, part. No. Um, yeah, why would she suppose that Abby was dead too if she had no reason to think so except that she wasn't there and claimed to have not seen the body? Uh, and again, the talk of poison she keeps doing is interesting to me. Um, you know, where, you know, she went, she went to get that the day before she went to go buy that hydrogen cyanide, that prusic acid, uh, or just, you know, cyanide, an, an ingredient included in, in Zyklon B, the gas uh, chamber poison used in the Holocaust. You know, was she, if, if she wasn't trying to poison her parents to kill them outright, make them look sick. So it looked like someone was trying to kill them. Uh, interesting to note also when you Google uh, prusic acid uses, the first thing that comes up is uh, parental murder. Uh, of course, that's not true, but it has no practical home use. Other than trying to poison someone or some animal, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, cyanide is the stereotypical ingredient one would use when talking about trying to poison someone. Cyanide or arsenic. Uh, industrially, around the time of Lizzie, cyanide was used in mining operations. That's why they were selling it locally. Uh, used to electroplate gold and silver. Used as a precursor to various chemical compounds needed to create certain polymers and pharmaceuticals. Basically, in, unless you're wearing a lab coat or you work in a mine, no reason to buy this poison. 
uh, unless you are trying to poison someone. Another neighbor, Alice Russell, you know, testified that Lizzie was talking about poison, you know, the night before the murders. You know, Alice claims Lizzie told her during a social visit that she was afraid her family was being poisoned. A lot of poison talk. It feels like she was trying to plant seeds. Like, hey, if, you know, my fucking family dies, just know that, you know, a lot of enemies, a lot of people want to poison them. It's diabolical if she really did it that way. Alice then, uh, said to Lizzie, uh, or said that Lizzie told me of a man that came to see her father, said she heard him say that she didn't see him, but heard her father say, I don't care to let my property for such business. You know, we talked about that earlier. Um, told me of uh, seeing a man running around the house one night when she went home. Uh, said she had for, uh, uh, said, and you, and you know, the barn has been broken into twice. And this is interesting based on what we know about at least one of the break-ins that the burglar was very likely Lizzie herself. We don't know that hundred percent, but it seems like it probably was her. So if true, interesting for her to attribute this to some other possible murderer hanging around. Uh, Alice said she told Lizzie, oh, well, you know, well, uh, or excuse me, you know, well, that that was somebody after pigeons. There is nothing in there for them to go after, but pigeons. Well, she says they, they have broken into the house in broad daylight with Emma and Maggie and me there. And then she says, I have never heard of that before. And she says, father forbade are telling it. Right. Father forbade her telling it. I just, I, ah, I, I don't believe this. And I don't believe that she would like not say something because her father forbade it. I mean, she was a known shoplifter around town. I'm, I'm guessing her father also forbade her from stealing shit, but she still did that. Oh, but she's going to keep this weird secret about a crime that, that she actually in all likelihood probably committed. Uh, Alice was asked further questions by the prosecution. They said, uh, is there anything else you recall? Anything about burning uh, in the house? She said, I feel as if I wanted to sleep with my eyes half opened, with one eye open half the time for fear they will burn the house down over us. Uh, what? Uh, is there any else? Uh, anything else that occurs to you in the conversation? Oh, she said, I'm afraid someone will do something. I don't know, but somebody will do something. I think that was the beginning. So she's just talking a lot. Uh, Lizzie is telling everybody she can, you know, uh, who will listen to her about someone I guess might burn their house down. Or someone might poison them. All this crazy uh, constant talk, worried about her father's life, you know? Reeks of someone premeditating a murder, uh, you know? Especially, uh, you know, she's so worried about someone killing her father, but she has no idea who that person would be. How convenient. Very convenient that the police have no one to question about these mysterious people wanting to, you know, from the, kill her dad because, uh, you know, she can't name them. And she's probably, I, I would think, not naming them because, you know, if she did name them, then they might have an alibi that would mess up her story. And then Alice, you know, of course, also testified that Lizzie ripped up a dress a few days after the murder, um, testified on that note supposedly delivered, uh, saying, Ms. Russell, to go back again to the day of the homicide, do you remember anything about a search for a note by anyone? Uh, yes, sir. State uh, what there is about that. When we were in the dining room, Lizzie was lying down, and I think Dr. Bowen came in. I always thought it was Dr. Bowen, came in and said, Lizzie, do you know anything about a note your mother had? And she hesitated and said, well, no, she didn't. He said, I have looked in the wastebasket. And I think I said, no. He said, have you looked in her pocket? And I think I said, well, then she must have put it in the fire. And Lizzie said, yes, she must have put it in the fire. <laughs> Again, looks bad. You know, uh, the supposed note, the imaginary messenger brought her stepmom. That her, you know, her, no one could find it, even though they looked in the garbage. And then it was what? I guess it was burned, just like the dress. Um, yeah. So much. Uh, and then the, uh, numerous witnesses also, of course, testified for the defense. Uh, here is Andrew V. Jennings' opening statement. This is the defense attorney who says, We shall show you that this young woman, as I have said, had apparently led an honorable, spotless life. She was a member of the church. She was interested in church matters. She was connected with various organizations for charitable work. She was ever ready to help in any good thing, in any good deed. And yet for some reason or other, the government in its investigation seemed to fasten this crime upon her. Now, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, 
I want to say a word about the kinds of evidence. There are two kinds of evidence, direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. Direct evidence is the testimony of persons who have seen, heard, or felt the thing or things about which they are testifying. They are telling you something which they have observed or perceived by their senses. For instance, if this was a case of murder by stabbing and a man should come before you and testify that he saw the prisoner strike the murdered person with a knife, that is direct evidence. That tends, that tends directly to connect the prisoner with the crime itself. Circumstantial evidence is entirely different, and I want to say right here, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, I call your attention to it now, and I do not think the Commonwealth will question the statement when I make it that there is not one particle of direct evidence in this case from beginning to end against Lizzie Andrew Borden. There is not a spot of blood. There is not a weapon that they have connected with her in any way, shape, or fashion. They have not had her hand touch it or her eye see it or her ear hear of it. There is not, I say, a particle of direct testimony. In the case connecting her with this crime, it is wholly and absolutely circumstantial. All right, maybe, maybe it is circumstantial, but that's a, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. Doesn't a lot of circumstantial evidence make for a pretty convincing picture? Or, or is circumstantial evidence always just circumstantial, right? Uh, and sadly, if, if the initial officers on the scene had more thoroughly searched Lizzie, they probably, in my mind, would have found a lot of direct evidence. You know, like the, like the murder weapon, like blood on her dress or person. Further helping the defense, Dr. Benjamin Handy, uh, Dr. Handy, that's a strange, uh, a physician. Uh, who are you going to go see today? Uh, Dr. Handy. Dr. Handy, a physician who lived nearby, testifies that he saw someone suspicious outside the Borden house that morning. Uh, I went by the Borden house on the morning of the murders at nine o'clock and again a little after 10.30. Saw a medium-sized young man of a very pale complexion with his eyes fixed on the sidewalk. He was passing slowly towards the south. He was paler than common and acting strangely. I turned in my carriage to look at him. Never have I seen him before. He had light suit of clothes, collar, and necktie. I have searched for him since. Been to the police station to look at various persons. But have never seen the young man since. Now, I think it's important to note here that Fall River is not some little town of a few hundred people. Remember? It's a bustling, industrial, small city. You know, what was it say? About 75,000. Experiencing a population boom. The Bordens uh, lived on a very busy street. Not some quiet, gated community. Seeing some pale, young dude does not seem like a huge deal. I mean, when he says, you know, paler than common and acting strange, it does make me think this guy's, you know, probably Polish. And that uh, that is concerning, you know, because uh, at the time, uh, Fall River didn't think to have an anti-Polish ordinance in place like they should have to keep uh, humans safe from those monsters. Uh, oh, and if you're a new listener, my wife is Polish, Polish and German. And, and I love her and I love to tease her. Uh, I've, I've always thought Polish women are hot. So the anti-Polish comments come from a good place. Anyway, Hyman Lubinsky, another uh, person who testifies for the defense, an ice cream peddler who was passing by the Borden house, testifies that he saw a woman leaving the barn when Lizzie said she was coming back to the house at 11.03. So maybe she really did head out to the barn. Uh, this does not make her uh, seem more or less guilty to me, though. And I do feel like the testimony of an ice cream peddler should be taken less seriously than virtually any other uh, person's profession. Right? I I'm sorry. Uh, what did you say your profession was? I'm an ice cream peddler. Uh, come again? I'm an ice cream peddler. Uh, that's what I thought you said. Now, now get on. Go on. Get out of here. Beat it. Okay. Can I get you a cool chocolate mall before you scoot on out? Well, of course you can. And a small Neapolitan Sunday for my assistant. But then, scram. Uh, I know there's nothing wrong with ice cream, you guys. And uh, that job title just cracked me up. I'm an ice cream peddler. Uh, Emma Borden, Lizzie's sister, of course, not in town in the morning of the murders. Also another character witness for the defense. She defends Lizzie about the blue dress that she was wearing that day. Remember, she said that it was her idea to, to burn it, which makes no sense. 
Uh, and she now just testifies that Lizzie had a cordial relationship with her parents, which uh, doesn't seem to be verified by other people. Uh, but anyway, the trial goes on from June 5th to June 20th. Most prominent points made, you know, that the hatchet head from the broken hatchet not convincingly shown to be the murder weapon because he didn't have fucking for proper forensic evidence. Uh, the blue dress, uh, which Lizzie was, was wearing on the day of the murders, probably. Uh, the dress she burned a few days later. Uh, there's an argument made that it's not the same dress. Uh, there was a similar axe murder nearby shortly before the trial. Now, I, I, have, I can't understand for the life of me why this was allowed to be discussed in court. We know that the dude who did the other axe murder many months later wasn't even in America when the Bordens were murdered. So how is that even possibly related? Uh, but I guess, I guess, I guess, you know, if that person wasn't fucking guilty, you know, ah, I don't know. Lizzie had purchased some prussic acid, a.k.a. cyanide, the day before, supposedly for cleaning a seal skin coat. The prosecution tried to claim that she was planning on poisoning her parents. However, this is ruled insubstantial by the judge, right, and tossed out. So, right, no one, no one gets to even uh, the, ju- the the jury does not get to consider this evidence. Crazy to me. No one uses cyanide to clean coats, but the judge thought this evidence was irrelevant since the Bordens were not poisoned; they were killed by a hatchet. And you know, and 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 no one has ever you know thought of killing someone one way and then change courses and kill them in another manner. Like that doesn't happen. If I'm ever charged with murder, can someone please build a time machine, go back and get this judge and bring him back for my trial? How, how do you not allow, or, or how, how do you allow an axe murder that for sure doesn't have shit to do with the Borden's murders, but then not allow the poison situation? Unreal to me. Uh, because everyone in the house had been sick for a week before the murder, uh, the bodies were tested for poison, but none was found. Uh, the victim's heads were removed. This is a big part of the trial during the, during the autopsy and then brought in as evidence in court, like shown. They showed the, the, the juror... Uh, the jurors, the 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 uh, the skulls. Lizzie fainted when she saw him on June twentieth, eighteen ninety three. After deliberating for just an hour and a half, the jury acquits Lizzie Borden. She's free to go home. Following the trial, the Borden sisters moved to a large house in that upscale hill neighborhood. They moved to the hill, just like Lizzie'd always wanted. They called their new home Maplecroft. They had living maids. You know, they had numerous servants, a housekeeper, a coachman, living it up like she always dreamed. Lizzie changed her uh, name to Lizbeth. And Elizabeth lived lavishly. All of uh, Andrew and Abby's estates went to the Borden sisters, uh, although they did uh, give some stuff to um, uh, Abby's family in a, in a little uh, settlement later. While Lizzie was now living in the midst of Fall River High Society, she's not welcomed by her neighbors. She's ostracized. She's not invited to parties, not welcomed in their homes. Not helping her was the infamous and popular nursery rhyme already in circulation, you know, that Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Now, that rhyme, uh, or a slight earlier variation of it, actually first appeared, uh, at least first as far as Lizzie Borden historians know of, in the News Herald of Hillsborough, Ohio, February 15th, 1894. So, yeah, so good chance Lizzie heard it in her lifetime. Probably a lot. I picture little kids singing it outside her home and then just scampering off when she shows up in the window. And, and the rhyme, of course, exaggerates the crimes. Uh, her parents received 29 or 30 total blows, not 81. Uh, she was again the recipient of some unwanted local attention in 1897 when she was accused of shoplifting. Providence, Rhode Island. Dad not around to protect old sticky fingers anymore. Uh, she eventually gave up on trying to be accepted by the upper crust of Fall River and began to associate with artist types, and bohemians, uh, actors and such, throwing lavish parties. Uh, in 1905, following an argument over one of these parties that Lizzie had thrown for actress Nance O'Neill, 54-year-old sister Emma moves out and they'll never speak again. Uh, she'll never see Lizzie again. Following the removal of her gallbladder in 1926, Lizzie was uh, become very ill and then she would die of pneumonia on June 1st, 1927, in Fall River. 
Her sister died nine days later, both of them buried side by side in the family plot in the Oak Grove Cemetery. Neither one of them ever had a serious known romantic relationship in their lives, and that will take us out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. All right, now let's talk a little about the intense media coverage that surrounded this trial. Interesting, interesting to note that uh, most of the media coverage seemed, seemed to kind of favor her innocence. Uh, I, I kind of I chalked that up to sign of the Victorian era times. Uh, under the headline, shocking crime of venerable citizen and his aged wife hacked to pieces in their home. The Fall River Herald reported the news of the Borden murders spread like wildfire and hundreds poured into 2nd Street, where for years Andrew J. Borden and his wife had lived in happiness. The Herald reporter who visited the crime scene described the face of the dead man as sickening. Over the left temple, a wound six by four inches wide had been made as if it had been pounded with the dull edge of an axe. The left eye had been dug out and a cut extended the length of the nose. The face was hacked to pieces and the blood had covered the man's shirt. Uh, Despite the gore, the room was in order and there were no signs of a scuffle of any kind. Initial speculation as to the identity of the murderer uh, the Fall River Herald reported centered on a Portuguese laborer who had visited the Borden home earlier in the morning and asked for wages due him, only to be told by Andrew Borden that he had no money and to call later. Uh, okay. Uh, the story added that medical evidence suggested Abby Borden was killed by a tall man who struck the woman from behind. But, uh, you know, later, uh, you know, people who examined the crime uh, who had some forensic knowledge don't agree with that. Uh, a story in the Boston Daily Globe did report rumors that Lizzie and her stepmother never got along together peacefully and that for a considerable time back, they have not spoken. Uh, the Boston Herald, meanwhile, viewed Lizzie as above suspicion, saying, from the consensus of opinion, it, it can be said, in Lizzie Borden's life, there is not one unmaidenly nor a single deliberately unkind act. Uh, what about the shoplifting? Uh, I, I would feel like that would qualify as unmaidenly. Uh, the New York Times editorialized, it will be a certain relief to every right-minded man or woman who has followed the case to learn that the jury at New Bedford has not only acquitted Ms. Lizzie Borden of the atrocious crime with which she was charged, but has done so with a promptness that was very significant. I don't know. So did she do it? And if she did, why did she do it? And if she didn't do it, who did it? You know, let's look a little more at that. Let's look a little more at that before we end this, today's episode. But before we do that, uh, let's check in with today's idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. Under a video titled simply Lizzie Borden documentary uploaded by DocSpot, a, a faux intellectual Artemis Fowl types, the truth doesn't create legends and urban myths. Amazes me, no one ever mentions there was a known serial killer living in the same town. No one mentions he was the nephew of the milkman. He delivered the milk. He killed several people with his hatchet and always used excessive force and took the same things from each scene. A few dollars, change, a pocket watch, leaving behind other things of value, even large amounts of money. He was an illegal immigrant and deported. He was known to the police prior to the Borden murders and attacked again while Lizzie was in prison. The DA and the uncle worked out an agreement and sent the nephew back to his motherland. The only messed up thing about this case is that Lizzie was arrested in the first place. She wouldn't kowtow to the, chov- to the chauvinistic DA and I for one salute her. I hope she's still giving them hell wherever she is. She wasn't that odd. She was a tomboy, lesbian feminist. In a time women were expected to be in the company of a man to cross the street. 
She didn't give a rat's ass who you were or what you thought. She wasn't going to play second fiddle to anyone. If you want to know the real facts of this case and not the commercial hype, read the newspapers from the surrounding cities, counties, and bordering states. Most public libraries still have a microfiche of newspapers. Also read the personal diaries of the DA, the judge, the lead detective, the jurors, and anyone you can find from that time. Ha! Oh, Artemis, you smug, blowhard fuck. You phony piece of lying shit. Read the papers of the day. Uh, read the diaries of the judge. and lead Why don't you fucking read that stuff? If you did, you would know that everything you said was nonsense. Learn how the nephew of the milkman was a known serial killer? If you would have actually looked into this case you, you claim to be such an expert on, you would know there was no hatchet-wielding serial killer in Fall River. You're talking about Portuguese migrant worker Jose de Mayo, and he was sent out of the country in 1913 after serving nearly 20 years in prison for the murder he committed after the Bordens were killed. Uh, you know, the Bordens being killed while he was not in the country, you dumb shit. I hate these brazen liars who just blatantly make up shit on the web and present it as hard-earned, well-researched fact to make strangers think that they're geniuses. Now, he killed one person with an axe after the board murders. And, and nice feminist virtue, uh, virtue signaling, you pathetic panderer. There is no evidence at all that Lizzie was some, you know, like uh, uh, feminist, you know, leader. Or that she was even a lesbian. Uh, there's no evidence that she was some feminist hero. Uh, you know, if she was so brave, if she was so independent, why didn't she tell daddy to fuck off, strike out on her own? Uh, that would be the actions of some, you know, pioneer of feminism. Have you read anything at all about Lizzie? She wasn't going to play second fiddle to anyone. Uh, she played second fiddle to daddy uh, until the day he died. She was a 32-year-old child and in all likelihood, a cold-blooded murderer. Uh, way to shape a false narrative to suit whatever story you feel like telling, you know, make you look cool in front of your friends, I guess. Are you are you a journalist? Do you write for the Huffington Post? Are, are you the judge from the actual trial transported to the present? What? Uh, user 3 Martini Playdate, a great username, by the way, then asks Artemis Fowl a question that sends him into a, another nonsensical tirade. Or I guess her. We don't know the, the gender of Artemis Fowl. Posting... That's some interesting stuff, but why would the DA benefit from letting the milkman's nephew go? To which Artemis Fowl replies, he'd benefit a lot, especially if it were made public. He had information before that she couldn't have killed her parents. How does he know this? Uh, imagine if you'd reflect on your DA knowing he arrested and tried someone for a crime he knew they didn't commit simply because he didn't like their attitude. Well, actually, it happens every day. Every day, guys, every single day. Difference being, people then were, were more hip about their constitutional rights, and we're not as complicit and easily manipulated as people are today. Oh, we're just a bunch of sheeple, you guys. For example, our justice system was designed to let the guilty go rather than risk imprisoning the innocent. But today, damn near all juries vote guilty. Where there is evidence or not. Uh, the reason prohibition was recalled was because jurors refused to, revo to vote guilty on such nonsense. They'd say, how do we know that's really alcohol if we don't try it? And then they drink all the alcohol and then say there was no evidence. Ha <laughs> ha, brilliant sons of bitches. When the government realized they had lost support of the people, the amendment was uh, amended. Just like in the Scott Peterson case, four pregnant women go missing. All four women found in the same spot. One abducted and killed by Scott, while Scott awaits trial. The house next door is burglarized the day Lacey goes missing. Neighbors call the police, yet police report is changed. To say the robbery took place the day after, when reporters were outside the house. Highly improbable. The, arrest, uh, uh, the arresting officer is on record saying 
he's going to nail him because he doesn't like his attitude, whether he had anything to do with it or not. Happens every day in America. In America is the court of public opinion, and that's the exact opposite of what your judiciary system was designed for. I guess court of public opinion would be okay if public had a lick of sense. You don't have a lick of sense, you fucking lunatic. Ah, dear God, if Artemis Fowl is ever standing between me and an open elevator shaft, I pray I have the strength not to throw him down it. Give me the strength, Nimrod. If I'm locked in a room with this person for any length of time, I feel like there's a good chance only one of us comes out. Who is this douche? The head writer for David Icke or Alex Jones? Uh, Artemis seems to share their gift of citing a lot of facts uh, they've just pulled out of their ass and just presenting arguments based on documents that do not exist. Uh, I will concede that most juries do, in fact, reach guilty verdicts. There's a lot of evidence on that, a lot of uh, stats out there. But that makes sense, right? That, it would be fucking weird if most juries came to an innocent conclusion. That would mean the police were, like, the absolute worst at their jobs that you can possibly, like, be at a job. Because you don't get put on trial in most cases unless there's, you know, I don't know, a lot of evidence. Uh, strongly suspecting that you did it. <laughs> Super weird for most trials not to end in guilty verdicts. Uh, and prohibition, you're totally wrong about that. Prohibition was not repealed because juries kept coming up with not guilty verdicts. It was repealed because it didn't work. It was supposed to reduce crime, but it led directly to so much more crime. It led directly to the rise of organized crime. And what are you talking about with your, uh, the juries would just drink all the alcohol and say that it was not, no, that's nonsense, right? Right? Like that was just happening. Uh, can we sample some of the, uh, alcohol that was supposedly, uh, drunk, drank by the defendant? Mm. This is delicious. Can we drink all of it? Well, we're not we're not drunk now, you guys. We're not even drunk. So innocent. No. And the Scott Peterson stuff, what are you talking about? The arresting officer in the Scott Peterson trial did not go on record and say he was going to arrest Scott because he didn't like his attitude. Listen up, everybody. As the arresting officer, I would like now to go on record and say, fuck that guy. I don't care if he did kill his wife. Uh, I just don't like his attitude. So let it be known that I will put him in prison by any means necessary. Now, if you excuse me, I have to go frame more people. Uh, and four pregnant women did not go missing, just like Lacey Peterson, all to be found in the same spot. Uh, another pregnant woman named Evelyn Hernandez did go missing on May 1st, 2002, almost six months after Lacey Peterson's disappearance. And a portion of her torso washed up on the Embarcadero three months later. The father of her unborn baby was suspected but never arrested. Her head, arms, and fetus never found. Lacey Peterson's body found about two miles north of Berkeley Marina, over 10 miles from Evelyn's body. So, you know, not exactly found in the same spot. Artemis, you dipshit. Uh, despite being wrong, about, about 90% of the time he makes an assertion. What's scary to me about people like Artemis, commenters on the web, is that most people seem to believe him if you read the replies underneath him. Like Shelly Whalen, who replies, what? I did not know this. Thanks for sharing. I think she was innocent. That's great. That's great. Now we just got another person out there believing a bunch of bullshit. Shelly, you didn't know that because it's not true. Why do people believe this asshole? Probably because he cites just enough factual sounding fake evidence to seem legit. Just like Alex Jones, just like David Icke, just like other manipulative morons with huge followings. The truth is out there if you want to look for it. Uh, I post my show notes on the website and the app so you can you can actually find my sources. These assholes do not because their sources are nonsense. Uh, you can choose, you know, not to believe everything you read on the web or you can just step right in and just join the continually growing dumb shit parade that is the idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. 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 All right, so who did it? 
Well, I think it's clear that uh, I think I think Lindsay did it. <laughs> Lindsay, ha! that was a weird Freudian. Lindsay, fuck, Lindsay did it. Lindsay Cummins went back in time, and she killed them with an axe to practice for me. Uh, no, Lizzie, Lizzie did it. I think uh, I believe. I think a combination of an all male jury composed of men who viewed you know slight, chaste, church going Lizzie through the Victorian era chauvinistic lens. Just couldn't, didn't see her. They just couldn't see her as capable of committing such a heinous and, uh, you know, crime. And, and, and I think the combination of that and, and important evidence being omitted from the trial is what freed her. Uh, but why? What was her motive? I, I think probably greed and, and freedom from the financial control of her father. I mean, she wanted more than he was willing to give her uh, as shown via her shoplifting. She just wanted more uh, as shown by moving to the most expensive part of town as soon as, as possible after the trial ends. Uh, as crazy as it sounds, I, I think she may... <laughs> She may also have asked him for accent or pigeons, right? She, she would later donate almost everything she had to a local Fall River animal shelter. Uh, she was known to really love animals. She seemed more fond of them than people. And dad and daddy didn't just, you know, get rid of her pigeons. He hatcheted them. Uh, and why kill Abby? Well, because, you know, if she kills only her father, then her father's inheritance goes to stepmommy. And she's even worse off than before. Now the purse strings are being pulled by someone she openly does not get along with. Also, there's a chance that her father was about to write her out of the will. A chance he was sick of putting up with her shoplifting, home thefts, other nonsense. She was a problem child, and he may have been about done with her. Rebecca Pittman, a devoted Lizzie Borden researcher and author of The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden, thinks that Lizzie initially tried to poison her parents because he was just, you know, uh, because he was just hours away from signing away uh, her inheritance to Abby. And if you're wondering about the poison, because uh, later they did, you know, find that uh, uh, that they weren't poisoned when they when they examined the bodies— they didn't have the tools necessary to examine for all types of poison. So, so she, they could have been poisoned and gotten sick, and it just didn't show up in the postmortem examination. But anyway, she claims this uh, author claims to have verified the identity of two mysterious men who witnesses spotted at the Borden home the day of the murders. Uh, you know, there was always people coming and going from the Borden home as, as Andrew uh, often conducted business out of his house. And she she claims to have verified there were two distant family members uh, came by using uh, Ancestry.com and some witness testimony. And she says this supports her theory that Andrew Borden was about to transfer one of his farms to Abby as a part of a new business deal involving her branch of the family. And that if he had lived long enough to sign the papers, this deal would have significantly lessened Lizzie's inheritance. So, you know, not writing her completely out of the will, but writing her mostly out of the will, which could have prompted a murderous rage. This is a theory. Uh, another theory that Lizzie was a, a lesbian, killed her parents because they knew of some lesbian affair uh, and forbid her from continuing with it. This is pure speculation, substantiated by nothing. She, she may have been a lesbian. There are no records of her seriously being courted by any man. Uh, she was captivated by actress Nance O'Neill, but a lot of people were. Uh, that's the actress she threw a, a party for, uh, for her that Emma, you know, caused Emma to leave. Uh, Nance also remained single until she was in her 40s, was single at the time. So, you know, people just, oh, two single ladies, you know, uh, Victorian era ladies, uh, they must be lesbians. No, not necessarily. Um, and, and, you know, if so... She might not have been having, you know, uh, a romance to anybody. It's pure speculation. Also, another theory that Lizzie snapped and killed her father because he'd been molesting her for years and Abby did nothing to stop it. Literally zero evidence to support that one. Uh, that theory seems to be based on the following. It seems to be based on Lizzie giving her father a ring as a teenager, and it was the only article of jewelry he wore. He was buried with it. That That's like the, the main evidence for this. Like, are you, what? Are you kidding me? He wore a ring his daughter gave him, so he must have been molesting her? Ridiculous. Get out of here. Uh, Lizzie's bedroom adjoined her parents' bedroom. Her bed was angled uh, as to obstruct the doorway between them, uh, like she was trying to prevent them from getting in. 
Um, that, or she just fucking, that was the best place to put the bed. Uh, Lizzie kept her bedroom door locked at all times. Yeah, but so did Mr. and Mrs. Borden. Uh, so I'm going to call bullshit on that. It's possible uh, in the way that we don't know what was going on behind the closed doors there, just like we don't know what was going on behind the closed doors of any family, but no evidence. There is a, another common theory that it was a murder-suicide. Now, something that Andrew killed his own wife with a hatchet for unknown reasons and then unable to live with the guilt, you know, uh, he, he then laid down while he's in shock on the couch and then hatcheted himself to death, miraculously surviving the first self-inflicted hatchet wounds to his own face. As crazy as it sounds, not unprecedented. A 37-year-old man named Harold Baines killed himself with a hatchet in Erie, Pennsylvania in 1888. Uh, after being suspected for stealing half a dozen rabbits from a neighbor the previous day. Uh, the coroner determined that Harold survived the first 17 blows to his own head. Before killing himself, he severed off both his ears, knocked all his teeth out, uh, obliterated both eyeballs, and then the next blow killed him. Uh, now, I, I think that's true because I did read about it in a book written by Artemis Fowl, uh, or at least allegedly written by him uh, as he claims on YouTube. So, you know, it's got to be true. It's got to be true. Now, get out of here. Fucking crazy talk. Let's move along now to top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, 70-year-old Andrew and 64-year-old Abby Borden uh, murdered with a hatchet on the morning of August 4th, 1892 in their Fall River, Massachusetts home. Abby was struck 18 times in and around the back of her head. Andrew was struck uh, 10 or possibly even 11 times in the face. Number two, Andrew's 32-year-old daughter, Lizzie, was charged with the murders of her father and stepmother. Uh, she and the living maid, Bridget, were the only people known to be home at the time of the murders. Lizzie had tried to buy cyanide the day before, burned the dress she was most likely wearing when the murders were reported, gave a ton of conflicting testimony about where she was and what she was doing the morning of the murders, but she was acquitted. Number three, despite what lunatic Artemis Fowl asserts, there was no axe or hatchet-wielding serial killer on the loose in Fall River in 1892, for sure. There was another axe murder committed months later by someone who had never been to America when Andrew and Abby were killed. Number four, maybe Lizzie didn't do it, truly. She was tried and found innocent and all the evidence uh, that she did do it, as her defense attorney pointed out at trial, is circumstantial. However, there, there just is a lot of circumstantial evidence. But, you know, she wasn't found covered in blood, known witness to killings that we know of. So maybe innocent, but I don't know. Come on. And number five, new info. Did Lizzie Borden strip naked to commit the murders? Then put a dress on. Could that explain why there was these two brutal murders, uh, murders committed, but she wasn't found covered in blood? Now, this theory admittedly comes from Hollywood. The 1975 movie, The Legend of Lizzie Borden, starring super sexy, bewitched actress Elizabeth Montgomery, 41 at the time of filming, showed Elizabeth getting naked to commit the murders. Well, it showed her getting naked as much as they made for TV, 1975, ABC, American movie could. Now, Why? Well, probably, honestly, because it was a great excuse to show as much of uh, Elizabeth Montgomery's sexy skin as possible. Love se uh, 70s sex symbols, by the way. The hair, the natural look, fantastic. Uh, but, but could this have happened? I mean, sure, why not? It would be much easier to wash blood off of your body than to get it off your clothes. Maybe what Lizzie, uh, you know, uh, when, she, when she explained, because she explained at one point that there was a gravy stain on the dress she was wearing when the police arrived. Um, maybe that was actually a little bit of blood. That's why she burned it later. Uh, maybe a little bit of blood she don't just didn't didn't uh, wasn't able to wash off. I, I I also hear that the new Chloe uh, Savini and Kristen Stewart Lizzie movie has both of them getting naked for the same reason. In, in this movie, Lizzie and Bridget are lesbian lovers. Going back to that theory, and they team up to kill Andrew and Abby. Very unlikely. I think Lizzie would have uh, come up with a better, more consistent story if she had been working with an accomplice. 
Uh, but, you know, it also does make me want to see that movie more. Hail is Uh The Christina Ritchie movie also has Christina Ritchie getting naked for the killings. So maybe just Hollywood invention. But, you know, maybe uh, another theory as, or definitely another theory, but maybe uh, something that actually did happen. Time suck. Top five takeaways. So Lizzie Borden has been sucked. Man, interesting suck. I just feel like I just could keep... <laughs> keep doing it. There's just so many different, like, well, maybe this happened. Well, maybe this happened. It's just kind of fun to examine the case, look at it all from testimony. Uh, I had moments in the, in the suck today where I was like, wait a minute, did I already say this? Cause I just kept looking at so many things for this one. I, I, I see why it dominated headlines. You know, they, they never did charge or strongly suspect anyone else in the deaths after Lizzie's acquittal, by the way. Uh, and, and one last thing, if she would have been found guilty, uh, Lizzie Borden would have been hanged. And some think the jury acquitted her because the dudes just weren't comfortable hanging a woman. Uh, actually, a woman had been hanged recently just before the trial in uh, Massachusetts. It was a big scandal, and a lot of people really didn't like it, uh, did not set well with the public. And so there was strong incentive for them to not do that again. Uh, and at the time, just culturally, women were charged with so few crimes of significance that there wasn't even a place to hold a woman prisoner in the Fall River Jail. Uh, again, you know, this is a, this is a decent-sized city. She had to be jailed uh, before her trial in a nearby town. And also, check this out. I just can't stop talking about uh, can't stop talking about this. This suck. The primary judge on the Borden case was uh, Justin Dewey. Justin Dewey had been appointed his judicial seat by the former governor of Massachusetts, a man named George Robinson. And what was George doing at the time of Lizzie's trial? Acting as her lead defense attorney. So that is a little bit of a conflict of interest. So, you know, uh, the lead defense attorney is the guy who gave the head judge in the trial his job. So many interesting facets of this case. I could keep going on and on and on, but this suck is, uh, I know, more than long enough already. So thanks again to the Time Suck team, High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Guardian of Grammar Dobner. God, it was nice to have him, uh, to get the episode to him in time this week. He fixed a lot of mistakes. Uh, love it. Uh, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley making it sound so good. Time Suck High Priest Alex Dugan. The guy's a bit elixir. It's fantastic app and website developers. Danger Brain, making everything we uh, have. All the new merch in the store looks so fucking great. Keeps getting better. Space Lizards and Merch Wizards, Access Apparel. Writing little Hail Nimrod notes on people's uh, stuff when they send it out. How cool is that? So good with customer service. If you have a problem with any merch, you just send it back. They'll take care of you. Uh, you know, refund it if something happened. Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins. Oh, the, the real brains behind this operation. And, uh, and big thanks to Bojangles research superstar uh, Sophie Fact Sorceress Evans. Also, quick shout out to longtime suckers and space lizards Greg, Dan, and Donna. Uh, three space lizards in Huntington Beach. Glad I got to see you at the shows. And glad I got to grab some pizza at Dan and Donna's pizza place in Anaheim called Out of the Park Pizza. Man, great food. Arcade games, ping pong tables, all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, next week, the darkness intensifies. It's dark October. Uh, we get into the tale of the chessboard killer, the ghost of Chikatilo. Maybe feeling threatened as we head to Russia to examine the life and crimes of another demented piece of shit. 44-year-old Alexander Yurovich Pashushkin, the Bitsa Park maniac. He is believed to have killed at least 48 people, possibly as many as 60, between 1992 and 2006 in southwest Moscow's Bitsa Park, where a number of victims' bodies were found. 2007, sentenced to life in prison. A childhood head injury may have changed him from a normal, fun-loving kid into a demented psychopath who wanted to kill 62 people to fill up the squares on a chessboard. So uh, super-duper fucked up, and we're going to suck him so hard next week. And now it is time for today's Time Sucker Update. Updates 
Get your time sucker updates. Coming in hot with an angry first update. It's okay. Uh, this is from Katie. I will leave her last name out because I don't want anyone, you know, mad at her to send her anything if they disagree. We don't need to perpetuate uh, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and I like it when you guys disagree. I just so, for the record, am not upset with Katie at all. Katie wrote, Master Sucker, damn. I am only halfway through your Andrew Jackson time sucking. Holy shit. This has made me more enraged than any other thing I've listened to in years. I know I'm only halfway through and I'm hoping you redeem yourself, but I just cannot get past your justification of his slavery. You literally justify slavery for about five minutes and then say, I'm not trying to justify slavery. Well, I was trying to contextualize it. Uh, I'm sorry, but the but fuck the idea that cultural norms make slavery okay or in any way acceptable. Nah, that's not, not what I was saying. There are many examples of people living in the U.S. in this time who didn't feel the need to buy and own land, or no, excuse me, to buy and own other humans. Okay, well, first off, Katie, uh, I, I was not justifying slavery. I was establishing that it is historically normal for certain groups of people living in certain parts of the world throughout history to have uh, had slaves. That was just, that's a historical fact. You don't have to like it, uh, but it, it's true. Uh, to pretend it's not is frankly a little, little silly. And to pretend everyone involved in it was evil, I think is also silly. Just this uh, weird thing to, you know, like uh, they, they like they refer to that in like writing as like bad writing, where you make people like black or white. They're just all bad or they're all good. It's like, well, no, they do bad things and they have other good elements to their character. And, uh, you know, whether you like it or not, it's just, it's just the way things were. I'm not going to sugarcoat uncomfortable truths. I think we should be able to, to face the truth. Uh, Katie continues, especially screw this motherfucker piece of shit who's responsible for not only owning plenty of slaves and treating them like garbage, but also constructing the genocide of an entire race that lived on his land well before him and his redneck family. Okay, uh, Andrew Jackson did not construct a genocide. Uh, Congress voted in favor of the Trail of Tears. It was more than one dude. Also, Andrew Jackson raised not one but two American Indians in his own home. Uh, you remember when Hitler raised two Jewish kids as if they were his own? No? Exactly. Uh, this tells me his feelings towards American Indians were, were not those of genocide, uh, and they were complicated. And yes, they were there before him. And, and based on your non-American Indian last name, they were here long before you as well. You would not be here had not the wars been won. War is ugly. War is hell. Think about Hiroshima, the bomb we dropped so recently on the poor people of Japan. Fucked up, man. Horrible things happen. And the Trail of Tears was a horrible, horrible thing. Uh, and then Katie continues, finally, I'm sorry and I respect you, but your example of, but an African man owns slaves first is not only insulting, but also irrelevant. This in no way makes it okay for what white men did to Africans for the next 200 plus years. Uh, you, again, you misunderstand me, Katie. The example I used, not insulting. Uh, it's just proof that slavery is not a white man's disease no matter how badly some people want to force that narrative. Uh, it's a meat sack disease. That's just the truth, and it'll always be the truth. We uh, meat sacks of all colors have enslaved others at various points in history. And again, of all colors. Uh, if we're going to demonize one group of people like white men, we need to demonize everybody. Uh, none of it was okay. And I, and I wasn't saying uh, it made it okay. I was just trying to show that, yeah, yeah, he was a slave owner. That's bad. Also, other people were slave owners, including people who were not white. I think that it is important the state because it gets left out of the narrative a lot of times. Uh, Katie finishes, I'm going to give you the benefit of doubt and try to listen to the rest of the suck. I'm, I'm guessing you didn't like it. Uh, but your take so far comes off as classic whitewashing of American history. It took you 45 minutes to even mention the fact that there were slaves as part of the population of this country. So far, you, you've spent about three minutes on the topic towards that, two of which were trying to make it seem like it's fine. Uh, no, uh, just a white girl's opinion on what is so far coming off as a white man holding up a human piece of garbage as some sort of hero. 
I hope by the end I'm wrong. If so, I'll write back and apologize, which didn't happen. So I know you're still mad. Uh, still a fan and listener from day one. Well, thank you for getting to listen. I hope you are still listening. Uh, uh, if not, I, you know, I hope you come back soon. You know, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one, though, about my take on the subject. Uh, I, I stand by not removing the context and era of someone's life when judging them. And that goes for people of all colors. You know, uh, you can say that what they did was wrong and, and that it, let not there be any confusion about that. It was wrong. What he did, the trail of tears, wrong slavery, wrong. Uh, I'm just trying to point out, uh, the contextual history for it. Cause what we do a lot now, this weird logical thing of trying to judge historical figures and judge historical eras by the mor- morals and, uh, by the normal culture of a time that those people never lived in. And sorry, you cannot like it, but that is fucking ridiculous. It makes no sense. Uh, what I'm trying to do is not whitewash anything. I'm trying to remain logical in a world that seems to make primarily illogical emotional decisions sometimes to me. You're good, eh, Katie? Uh, you got a good heart. I hope we still have you here in the suck. I, lo- I see your logic. I do. I love its intent. Keep challenging me uh, like everyone else. I need it to. Uh, okay. Now, an anniversary sh- shout out from a wonderful sucker named Caitlin Nolan. Uh, Caitlin writes, Dear Dan, I'm writing to you out of desperation. My husband and I have been together since we were teenagers and just celebrated our 13th anniversary. Lately, we've been going through some really rough times. He works so hard. He is the most amazing man I've ever met. He's a space lizard through and through. And I wanted to know if you could give him a shout out. Your podcast has been something that's gotten him through some rough shit. And I wanted to know he is seen, uh, he's loved, and he's a motherfucking badass. Aw. Anyways, if you decide to find it in your heart, please just let Nick Nolan from Grand Rapids, Michigan know that his wife loves him with all her heart or some sappy shit like that. It would mean the world to me. Well, Nick Nolan, you're lucky meat sack. You're loved, man. Caitlin seems fan-fucking-tastic. Give her the biggest, longest hug you've ever given anyone in your whole life next time you see her and a big old Lucifina-like kiss. And then, you know, see things, uh, see where things go from there. Maybe they get more exciting. Uh, thank you, Caitlin. I hope you two are, are, are doing well. And that was very sweet. Uh, another shout-out shout out now coming from Time Sucker Wendy King uh, who says, Hey there, Master Sucker, uh, Neho. Uh, so my Space Newt Holden is a huge fan. He got me into the suck after I got him into your stand-up. He's super bummed that he can't come to the Spokane show in December since the venue is 21+. plus. I was hoping you would make his day. Give a shout-out to him. He just passed his driving test, so he's now an official licensed driver. Watch him. Watch out, Spokane drivers. There's a new lizard driver in town. <laughs> Thank you for being uh, you and leasing our little cult with compassion, intelligence, and hilarity. Oh, leading, sorry. Uh, and don't forget, church on Sunday, 10 o'clock. Your faithful space lizard, Wendy. Well, thank you, Wendy. Thanks for referencing a fun little stand-up bit in there. Uh, Holden, hug your mom. You you get in a hug there. Uh, just don't do the other stuff I advise Nick to do. Uh, that'd be way too much. That's, that's too much for moms. Be gone, Mr. Phoenix. Get out of here. Uh, really, though, give your mama a, a sweet hug. Sorry about the age requirement. Fucking liquor loss. And drive safe. Don't be a dipshit like I was recently. Wear your seatbelt. And don't be a huge dipshit like I used to be and get a DUI. Unless you want to risk uh, killing somebody. Not good. Uh, and now, last message from Merritt Langley asking about wackadoodles. Says, Dan, I've been listening to your comedy since 2010 when I first heard Revenge is Near. Uh, you're definitely a, bi- a, a biased favorite, but I have a question. When did you start using the phrase wackadoodle? Was it taken from a family member or heard on the road? Did you make it up? I've never heard the phrase before, and it's so succinct and perfect that I've started using it myself. Yeah, man, use it. Everybody use it. Thank you for the wonderful entertainment. Keep on sucking. I think I think I made it up. I mean, if I did hear it from someone else, I mean, I could have, and I just don't remember that. I think I made it up, and, and to me, what I wanted to do is come up with like a nicer word to use than the more aggressive fuck face or asshole, ass clown, dumb shit, ass wipe. Cockface, 
I wanted to go something a little softer, you know, something for the kids. No, but something a little softer where it's like, ah, okay, you're not a horrible person. You're just, ah, you're thinking some real silly things right now. And I wish you would not think those. Wackadoodle. You got some crazy beliefs that I wish you would re-examine. You're you're wackadoodle. Uh, The silliness of the word takes the edge off from me. Uh, And that's it. And thank you for writing in, you beautiful bastards. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening, Meat Sacks. Have a great week. Do not kill anyone with an axe or uh, or and or a hatchet. Much harder to get away with now than it was in 1892. And try not to get killed uh, with an axe and or hatchet. Probably just as shitty to die that way as I imagine it was in 1892. And for the love of sweet Nimrod, sweet baby Nimrod, keep on sucking. Abby had actually put her vagina in a safety deposit box at the bank a few years earlier because she just didn't think she was going to need it.